Uh, good morning. I'd like to welcome everyone to today's hearing on the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on the Western Hemisphere, um, Transnational Crime, Civilian Security, Democracy, Human Rights, and Global Women's Issues. We have a huge portfolio in the subcommittee. But today's hearing is about the United States and Venezuela and the path to democratic transition. And obviously, it is timely and it is urgent. And I, uh, we have two panels today. The first panel, we're going to hear from two witnesses from the executive branch, the Honorable Mark Green, who is the administrator at USAID, and the Honorable Elliot Abrams, who is our US Special Representative for Venezuela. We thank you both for taking the time to be here. I know our members are very interested in this topic. We'll have a second panel of non-government experts, Mr. Eric Farnsworth, the Vice President of the Council of the Americas, and Dr. Cynthia Aronson, the Director of the Wilson Center's Latin America Program. I want to thank all of you for being here. Eric was with us last year around this time in April speaking about the Summit of the Americas, so I want to thank him for joining us again and, um, and so forth. And, and, and before I go to my opening remarks, uh, the chairman of the full committee is with us, Senator Arish, and his leadership on the committee is off to a great start, and I wanted to recognize him uh, uh, for, for some remarks at the, at the outset. Well, thank you very much, uh, Chairman Rubio, for holding uh, this subcommittee hearing. It's one of what I hope will be uh, uh, many uh, in consultation with yourself, as you know, and with the other uh, subcommittee chairman, uh, we are encouraging uh, having these kind of hearings that are able to drill down uh, better than the uh, whole committee can on specific issues uh, regarding uh, specific regions. Uh, my hope is, and I know I share this with you, that this hearing will underscore our support uh, for the Venezuelan people and for the uh, legitimate president uh, of Venezuela, Juan Guaido. Uh, I, I think uh, our friends in the media would be very helpful as we try to uh, transition towards uh, much more stability there to refer to Mr. Maduro as uh, the ex-president of Venezuela and not as the president. There is only one president of Venezuela right now. Uh, uh, excuse me. Uh, that there is only one president of Venezuela right now, and that is Juan Guaido. Uh, the Venezuelan people are to be commended for using the rule of law to transition as uh, civilized people do. Section 233 of the Constitution uh, provided for a way to, uh, to make a change. Uh, they have done so. They have done so properly. They've done so under rule of law as uh, civilized people do, and we in America want to recognize that and extend our appreciation for that and do all we can to help the Venezuela uh, people accomplish what they set out to do under Section 233 uh, of, the, uh, uh, of the Constitution. Finally, let me say that this is not a partisan issue. This is a bipartisan issue. I think uh, everyone recognizes, and uh, we need to uh, pursue it in that vein. So again, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman, and uh, we'll, uh, uh, I'm, I'm here to support uh, you and your efforts to do this. Thank you for, for coming this morning. So I want to begin my remarks by answering the question of why should we care? It's the most important question that we must always answer any time the U.S. takes uh, a foreign policy step. That, what, what is, why should America care about what's happening in particular, why should America care about what's happening in Venezuela and democracy and, and the support for the interim government of President Juan Guaido? The, let me begin by saying the first reason is that the humanitarian, political, and economic crisis is not just a Venezuelan crisis. It is a regional crisis. Since the year 2014, 3.4 million, by many estimates, Venezuelans have fled Venezuela. 
That is 10% of the nation's population that has left the country. As a point of reference, it would be the equivalent. If we said 10% of the US population had left over five years, it would be the equivalent of every person living in Florida, Maryland, and Massachusetts leaving the country over a five-year period. Uh, beyond that, over 80% of them have migrated into the region, into Latin America. About half of them are in Colombia, in one country. Today, Colombia in particular, but also Peru and Ecuador are bearing the brunt of the cost of this mass migration. Further exacerbating it is that the United Nations has already projected that if all things continue on the current path, this year alone, and I mean the current path before the events of January, they estimated that this year alone, another two million Venezuelans will leave the country. And I'm here to tell you that if another two million people leave on top of the 3.5 that of 3.4 that have already left, and 80% of them stay in Latin America, it will deteriorate and potentially collapse the public services of Colombia and severely impact the same in Peru and in Ecuador and in other nations. This has the potential to be a regional catastrophe of epic proportions. It is already at that level, and that is reason alone to care about it because the United States will be directly impacted by that, in particular because of our close partnership with Colombia. Bottom line is if Maduro remains in power and things do not get better, it threatens to trigger a cataclysmic crisis. And our closest ally at this moment in, in South America, in Colombia, are improving relationships with Ecuador and our important partnership with Peru. The second reason why we should care is because the Maduro crime family, the Maduro regime, actively, not secretly, not covertly, actively participates in the trafficking of cocaine. Planes filled with cocaine operate out of Venezuelan airfields under the auspices and protection of the Venezuelan military and they deliver cocaine to airstrips in Central America. That cocaine is then handed over to drug networks. Drug networks that along the way destabilize El Salvador and Honduras and Guatemala, exacerbating the migratory patterns that we are seeing on our southern border. And then that cocaine enters the United States, and winds up in our streets, and in the hands of Americans. All under the auspices of the Maduro regime who charges a fee for this service of escorting drug shipments out of Venezuela. Um, by the way, if you don't pay them the fee, they shoot down your plane. If you pay them the fee, they get rich and you get to traffic cocaine. And we see the flights and they're protected by them. The third reason we should care is that the Maduro regime provides safe harbor to terrorist groups like the ELN, the group that just killed over 20 police cadets in Colombia in a bombing. And they, rep and they provide auspices and protection and safe harbor to other narco-terror groups. And what I mean by that is these groups op operate openly, openly in camps within Venezuelan territory, not hidden camps, not covert clandestine camps, open camps that you can see from commercial satellite imagery. And they stage attacks against Colombia from Venezuela and they too traffic in drugs destined for the United States. And they do all of this with the full support, the full cooperation and the protection of the Maduro regime, who by the way, also gets a cut of those proceeds. The fourth reason we should care is that the regime has openly and repeatedly invited Russia and Vladimir Putin to conduct military operations in our hemisphere from their territory. They've offered them openly an air and naval base free of charge for the Russians to operate from. In fact, just a few months ago, two nuclear-capable Russian bombers flew a mission into the Caribbean Sea from an air base in Venezuela. The fifth reason we should care is that Maduro crime family has close ties to the regime in Iran. In fact, even as we speak, Maduro is working to offer the 
Iranians, tons of gold stolen from the gold reserves of Venezuela in exchange for Iranian projects and services. And there are no projects or services off offered by the Iranian regime that are good for the United States. And, and sixth, as if we needed any more reasons to care, is that in their thirst for hard currency, the Maduro regime is irresponsibly, recklessly, and irreparably mining for gold to sell in global markets, and it is doing so in a way that is creating an irreversible ecological and environmental disaster in some of the most sensitive areas of Venezuela, and future Venezuelans, and frankly, the region, will pay a price for this extraordinary economic catastrophe that has not received nearly enough attention. So, they're destabilizing our closest partners in South America. They're driving violence in Central America with the drugs that they're helping to ship, which is, of course, exacerbating illegal migration. They're pumping cocaine into our streets. They're providing Putin a military foothold in our hemisphere. They're providing gold to Iran. They're destroying the national uh, the environment. It is a very compelling reason to care about what's happening. The Maduro regime is a clear danger and threat to the national interest, and I would argue national security of the United States. This sadly is not a new issue for me. Uh, it's been in the news a lot lately, but I've been working on this topic along with Senator Menendez since as far back as 2014, 2013. And uh, we've been working closely, speaking out about this since that time. The situation grows more dire by the day. It's, it's hard to imagine that Venezuela was once the wealthiest country in South America, not 100 years ago, not 50 years ago, but within the lifetime of everyone in this room. Now, People of Venezuela are the subject of daily blackouts, empty store shelves, devastating shortages of food and medicine, and a dehumanizing scramble to survive. And lest anyone think that this is the product of sanctions from the last four to six weeks, that's a fraud, that's a lie. This has been going on for years because they've stolen the money. They steal all of the money. None of the proceeds, none of the money they're making from any of this are going into the hands of anyone but a small group of cronies who live a life of luxury around the world, their families most certainly do, while the people of Venezuela suffer. These 3.4 million people that left Venezuela over the last five years left well before any sanctions imposed over the last five weeks. And previous to that, by the way, all the sanctions were imposed on individuals, not on the government, not on the economy. In 2018, a study found that 90% of Venezuela's estimated 31 million people live in poverty, and worse, Venezuelan citizens involuntarily lost, on average, 24 pounds in the previous year, which is a stunning statistic when all of their leaders are overweight. All the leaders of Venezuela are overweight, and yet the people, on average, are losing 24 pounds in a year. Chronic infections, diseases are rampant, and hospitals lack adequate supplies to care for their patients. We have here posts, I believe, picture number one over there. It shows a malnourished child in Dr. Domingo Luciani Hospital in Caracas, Venezuela. These are images we are used to seeing from other regions in the world, not the Western Hemisphere. This is the condition of children who today are dying, dying in Venezuelan hospitals. The Pan American Health Organization has indicated that outbreaks of diphtheria, measles, and malaria have spread in the country, which, by the way, also has a regional impact. Other areas of public health concerns also include HIV, HIV-AID patients who have been denied medications and are going to die if they do not receive delivery of those medications, not to mention an increase in maternal and infant mortality, limited access to medicines, and adequate care for people with life-threatening chronic conditions. Uh, perhaps the most uh, uh, compelling of all is, is those in need of dialysis. Uh, without objection, I would like to introduce for the record 
the PEJO's response on the need to maintain an effective technical cooperation agenda in Venezuela and neighboring countries. Um, I, I, these are important statistics uh, to keep in mind. Shortages in food and medicine and a total collapse of social services have created a humanitarian crisis, and as I mentioned earlier, migration flows that are destabilizing the entire region, including, as I have already mentioned, Venezuela's neighbors. I witnessed that firsthand in my visit to Cucuta, Colombia, just two weeks ago. I would caution that over the next few weeks, and I say this with a sense of urgency that I cannot overstate, Venezuela, because of graft and corruption and the unwillingness of the Maduro regime to allow humanitarian aid to be delivered in the country by anyone, frankly, although they claim they are open to it, they still deny that there's a humanitarian crisis, despite compelling evidence to the contrary. Over the next few weeks, Venezuela is going to enter a period of suffering no nation in our hemisphere has confronted in modern history. As of today, Venezuela has about six, seven days left of fuel supplies. This in the most oil-rich country in the world. And this is because they've destroyed the domestic production capacity. Venezuela is just a handful of days away from running out of basic staples, wheat and cornmeal and, 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 and cooking oil. Again, because of complete and utter mismanagement. I, I assure you, none of the regime cronies are going to go hungry but millions of Venezuelans will continue to grow hungry and exacerbate it in a way we have not seen. I regret to report that the suffering people of Venezuela are about to experience the most dramatic shortages they have ever faced, the implications of which we cannot fully predict, but none of it is due to any of the actions taken by the United States up to this point. It is entirely the result of the fact that its leaders have stolen literally everything they can get their hands on and continue to do that to this very moment. The regime, in fact, has used the suffering as a political weapon. 42% of the people in Venezuela depend on a government food program they call CLAP. It's just, first of all, it's also the subject of corruption. That food is imported. The cronies steal a percentage of it to resell in the private market for their own profit. And then the rest is distributed to those who are compliant or loyal to the regime. So if you go to a Maduro rally, you get food. If you don't show up at the rally, you don't get your CLAP box. If you vote for Maduro and they know how you voted, you get food. If you don't vote or don't vote for him, you don't get food. They have used it as a weapon. This is why he objects to humanitarian aid, because he doesn't want to use the leverage that he has over the people of Venezuela by using food and medicine against them as a weapon. And that's why the United States and our partners from around the world have provided and stationed food and medicine on the border to try to avoid this humanitarian catastrophe not to politicize it, but to prevent the mass, not just human suffering, but additional mass migration that threatens to destabilize the region. And because denying people food is one of the ways the regime controls the population, that's why two weeks ago we watched the Maduro regime violently, violently and brutally block food from entering the country. Any regime who is threatened by food and medicine, that tells you everything you need to know about them. They didn't just block it, by the way, they burned it. They set it on fire. You see in picture number two, a truck carrying humanitarian aid burned on the Francisco de Paula Santander Bridge, set on fire by armed criminal gangs of the Maduro regime. Aid, by the way, that nonviolent civilians begged them to allow in. In picture number three, right here before me, you see a woman kneeling in front of the National Guard officials, begging them to permit the entrance of humanitarian aid. The regime's response, by the way, was not just to use military force, but they have armed paramilitary gangs. Armed these paramilitary gangs that operate in these little scooters. They've armed them, and they've done worse. They have armed felons. They've released felons from jail 
and told them, go out and kill people and earn your freedom that way. I want at this moment, with the indulgence of the committee, just a brief 30-second video. It's captioned in English. It is from a member of the Maduro military who crossed the border, and I want you to read the caption of what he says were their orders as he crossed the border. I declare myself loyal to Juan Guaido, President and Commander-in-Chief Juan Guaido. The government wants to massacre the people. The government wants to massacre the people. The orders are to kill the people, to release the colectivos, those are the armed gangs, and release prisoners on the streets to attack the people. That's not me saying it. That's not a U.S. politician saying it. That is a member of the national, of, of the armed forces of Venezuela saying it as he crossed the border. Their orders were to kill people. In fact, at one point, what he says, he uses the term plomo, which means lead. Their orders were to use lead, bullets, against the people. That's what it means. And they've only grown more brazen since that day. For example, Univision reporter Jorge Ramos and his crew were detained, detained personally by Maduro, and their camera seized, and to this day not returned, because they didn't like the questions that he asked. They literally detained them, took their cameras, and haven't released them to this day. Just yesterday, another US journalist, Corey Weddle was arrested by the military intelligence services in an early morning raid and held for 12 hours and then put on an airplane and sent back. This is an effort to intimidate the press. This is an effort to send a message to the press. You report on things we don't like. This is how we're going to treat you. In the month of January alone, Maduro has detained 24 journalists, including the recent US citizens detained for hours, as I, uh, I want to include a document in the record with a number of journalists that have been detained. They're from all over the world. And without objection, I, I want to introduce that into the record. The OAS Secretary General has said that this, quote, the systematic attack against the civilian population in <laughs> Venezuela includes murders, imprisonment, and torture, and it is evident in the eyes of the international community that we are in the presence of crimes against humanity, end quote. One of those civilians who as of today has now spent 212 days in jail is Juan Recosens, a 29-year-old member of the National Assembly, the democratically elected National Assembly, basically their unicameral a democratic elected legislative body. He's also a former Venezuelan student leader. He was dragged out of his home by masked thugs for simply voicing his opposition against the regime. His sister, Rafaela, whom my office has been in close touch with and is also a student leader in her own right, is here with us today. And I wanted to take this moment to recognize her and I thank her for joining us here today. She does so a great danger and personal risk, but that's how important that cause is for her and for the people she represents. Your presence, your voice and support of not just your brother, but also for the hundreds if not thousands of political prisoners in Venezuela is a testament to the suffering of the Venezuelan people and the injustice committed by the Maduro regime. Maduro doesn't do any of this on his own. It's done with the help of three specific nefarious actors. The enslaved island nation of Cuba's government, which has infiltrated all of their security forces and is in de facto control of the country. I'm not exaggerating this. Anyone who knows anything about this will tell you Cuban agents are all through every level of that government. Russia, which continues to provide them with opportunity to evade sanctions and support them in international forums, and China, 
which goes around acting like they're the non-interference people, but in fact are helping lead Maduro's effort to block the internet. Among the tactics used by the regime, I've outlined it already, under the direction of Cuba, the armed gangs known as the colectivos. These gangs have a presence in the Bolivar and Amazonas states where the trafficking of illegal gold mining, as I said earlier, have devastated the environment and created unforeseen problems for the ailing economy. Picture number five, which is up here, is a, is a picture of those armed gangs and how they use them in the streets. It's in Urania, Venezuela. It was these gangs, along with elements of the military, that on the 23rd of February carried out a massacre whose toll is still not fully known, a massacre of members of Venezuela's indigenous communities on the border with Brazil who were seeping, seeking to help get humanitarian aid into the country, and that is our final picture, picture of an injured Pomone Indian, na natives to the area, indigenous community, who has been the subject of a massacre that history will write about and whose numbers we do not fully know. Unfortunately, that massacre has been largely ignored in the mainstream media um, as out, uh, outlets, as they opened fire and the military and other irregular forces and opened fire on them and prevented the, the delivery of aid from the Brazilian border. But fortunately, the world is waking up to the true nature of this crisis. 54 nations, not the United States alone, 54 nations, vast majority of the nations of this hemisphere, including under the leadership of the Lima Group, which the United States isn't even a member of, but involves all the most important regional partners that we have, have recognized Juan Guaido as the legitimate interim president of Venezuela. Last week, the United States introduced a resolution at the UN Security Council supporting interim president Juan Guaido and calling for free and fair elections. It was supported by a majority of the members of the Security Council. You can, of course, guess who vetoed it, China and Russia. Before I close, I want to recognize and I want to thank the many, many Venezuelans, both in the U.S. and from abroad, who are here with us today. I know there are many that have traveled from my home state of Florida and many other parts of the United States, and I want to applaud your perseverance and your fight uh, and in this cause. And, and I would close with this message to those here in the room and watching elsewhere, especially those in Venezuela. Your fight for freedom and restoration of democracy is our fight, and the free world has not and will not forget you. Uh, Maduro's regime believes that he can wait us out. That's been his strategy all along. Hold on, wait it out, the world will lose focus. They'll stop paying attention, they'll move on to other things, and the opposition will fracture. We're not gonna forget about it. We're not gonna lose attention. We'll be on this as long as it takes, and no matter how hard it is, it is in our national interest. It does honor to our legacy as a nation that believes in the dignity and human rights of all people, and it is something that we are strongly committed to as I hope you will take away from today's hearing, uh, there may be debates about tactics, but there is no debate, I believe, uh, and no real disagreement among our parties here in the United States that the people of Venezuela deserve far better than to be in the grips of a criminal organization as they are today. Uh, with that, I want to uh, introduce the ranking member, Senator Cardin, and I know also that the ranking member of the full committee is here and, and has been very engaged, and, and I would open up to him for however you want to handle that afterwards. Well, uh, th thank you, Mr. Chairman. First, uh, on behalf of the Democratic members, I want to congratulate you on your chairmanship of this subcommittee. Uh, I look forward to working with you. Um, I very much appreciate that the very first hearing of our subcommittee is on Venezuela. Your comments, uh, particularly your closing comments, I believe represent the consensus of both parties here on this committee and that is that the Maduro regime has no legitimacy. Uh, 
and that the Venezuelan people deserve a democratic government, a government that will protect their human rights. So uh, I think this is the, the right hearing for us to start, and I look forward to working with you. I also appreciate the fact that you acknowledge Senator Menendez, our ranking member of the full committee, and when I com complete my opening comments, I would ask that he be recognized for an opening statement. Uh, Senator Menendez has been our leader in this hemisphere. He's been our leader now globally, but he's been our leader on this hemisphere. And certainly his statements in regards to Venezuela uh, echo uh, and have been in leadership of many of the statements that you have made in your opening statement. And lastly, let me thank the patience of our witnesses. Uh, we're a little bit more lengthy in our opening comments. Uh, I hope the chairman will be uh, tolerant uh, of the clock today because I do think the seriousness of this subject, the timeliness of this subject, and the importance of us working with the Trump administration to help the people of Venezuela could not be more urgent. So I very much appreciate uh, the importance of this subject. The Venezuelan people have suffered the consequences of this tragic man-made humanitarian and human rights crisis for far too long. Through their enduring resilience and perseverance, they have now had an historic opportunity to restore democracy, prosperity, and the rule of law to their country. Mr. Chairman, I wholeheartedly agree with your assessment of the staggering corruption, mismanagement, authoritarianism, and criminality used by the Maduro regime and his loyalists to oppress the people of Venezuela. Decades of slow erosion of democratic norms and human rights, along with the selfish motivations of a dictator, have precipitated this crisis. It is, a tragic, it is tragic that the Maduro regime would rather feed their own greed than allow millions of hungry Venezuelan children and families to assess the food and humanitarian aid they desperately need. As you pointed out, the loss of body weight of the average Venezuelan is shocking, 24 pounds, according to, the, to a study done in 2017. It's called the Maduro diet. So while Maduro's inner circle enriched themselves with billions of dollars of ill-gotten funds, the Venezuelan people lack basic necessities. They live in fear of being killed, robbed, or kidnapped by criminal groups which operate with impunity and even outright government approval, as you pointed out in, in your opening statement. Today, Caracas has the sad distinction of being the world's most dangerous city. Under these dire circumstances, the Venezuelans are fleeing their country in record numbers. An estimated three million have fled over the past five years, resulting in a refugee crisis unprecedented in this hemisphere. Our Latin American neighbors have given refuge to millions of fleeing Venezuelans, and I applaud their efforts. It's been extremely challenging for the surrounding countries. I had a chance to talk to, to Administrator Green um, about this yesterday. And it's incredible what the surrounding countries are doing in order to meet these needs. I'm aware, Mr. Chairman, that your home state of Florida has also received fleeing Venezuelans. The crisis hits close to home for many of my constituents in Maryland as well. This is truly a regional crisis affecting the entire hemisphere, as you pointed out. For all these reasons, both moral and practical, the crisis in Venezuela commands our attention. I support the U.S. and OAS and other donor efforts to provide humanitarian assistance to those in need, including Venezuelans who fled their country. And as I talked with Administrator Green yesterday, we, we can get access in regards to those that are outside of Venezuela, but when, within Venezuela, it's much, much more difficult. 
I similarly support the use of economic tools like global Magnitsky sanctions to target the Maduro regime's worst offenders. Targeted sanctions provide accountability and prevent criminals in the regime from using the banking system to hide their stolen assets. You know, they, they, they don't want to keep their assets in Venezuela. They would like to be able to do, do that globally, and we can prevent that. I call on our partners to consider imposing their own Magnitsky-like sanctions on the Maduro regime to amplify the impact of the sanctions. Regime officials should not be allowed to hide proceeds of their corruptions overseas and send their family members to live abroad in luxury while their country starves. As we are well aware, there are also clear steps that the Maduro regime can take to get themselves delisted from sanctions. Those currently keeping this illegitimate government in power and blocking aid from entering their country should know it's not too late to do the right thing. Our partners and allies in Latin America and worldwide have formed a powerful chorus calling for a peaceful return to democracy in Venezuela. More than 50 countries have joined us in recognizing the legitimacy of the Guaido government. I hope that others will continue to do so. The United States, along with our global partners, can help the interim government resolve the crisis peacefully so that Venezuelan people can finally fully reclaim their country. I really do appreciate the witnesses that are here today. I really look forward to Mr. Abrams and Mr. Minister Green. We thank you for your long service to our country and your continued service to our country. And Mr. Chairman, I, with your permission, I would like to yield to the ranking member of the full committee, uh, Senator Menendez. Senator Menendez. Well, <clears throat> let me start off by commending Senator Rubio, Chairman Rubio, and uh, Senator Cardin uh, for convening today's hearing. Uh, I think it's a critically important, timely one. If we're talking about the Western Hemisphere, uh, nothing rises in my mind higher at this moment than Venezuela, and of course, uh, following that, Nicaragua uh, uh, as well. And by thanking Administrator Green and the Special Envoy Abrams for being with us today, I think uh, the one thing that should walk away from this hearing is that today, Democrats and Republicans are united as one on behalf of the people of Venezuela. Uh, on recognizing uh, interim president Juan Guaido as the legitimate uh, interim president uh, of Venezuela and in our pursuit of democracy and human rights for the Venezuelan people. Venezuela is at a crossroads, one in which a dictator clings to power amidst the ruins of a failed state, and one in which democratic actors seek a peaceful transition in the reconstruction of their country and their society. The Maduro regime has inflicted widespread suffering on the Venezuelan people. I think the chairman made uh, his opening remarks very extensive on this question. From a man-made humanitarian crisis to an economy in free fall to the violence perpetrated by security forces, colectivos, and the regime's death squads. Maduro is a criminal dictator who has destroyed a country. His election and inauguration are illegitimate, not because we say it, but the world says it. And his grip on power comes only from the oppression of his people the assets he has stolen from them, and the military leaders he has paid for their loyalty. The fact that he is closely advised by Cuba and bankrolled by Russia and China only complicates the matters. There is, however, a democratic process by which members of the legitimately elected National Assembly exercise their power under the Venezuelan Constitution to designate Assembly President Juan Guaido as interim president of Venezuela. Embracing this process to restore democracy in Venezuela 
It was critically important that more than 50 countries recognize Guaido as the interim president. This unprecedented coalition spans our hemisphere and the world, from Canada, Colombia, Argentina, Ecuador, and Brazil to the United Kingdom, France, Spain, Germany, and Japan, to mention a few. I strongly support the administration's decision to recognize Guaido, as well as its efforts to expand sanctions against specific individuals and to work with regional partners to deliver much-needed humanitarian aid. And I believe firmly in the full use of U.S. political and economic pressure to create the conditions necessary for a negotiated solution that includes Maduro's departure and Venezuela's peaceful return to democracy. So we must ask, where do we go from here? As the Guaido government works to restore democracy, the global community must not waver in our support for the Venezuelan people. In 2014, when I was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, we passed the first set of uh, sanctions and uh, efforts uh, to restore democracy to Venezuela. Last week, I authored bipartisan legislation to extend temporary protected status to Venezuelans in the United States. And in the coming weeks, I plan to introduce comprehensive legislation aimed at pressuring the Maduro regime further and helping the Venezuelan people rebuild their country. My legislation will expand humanitarian assistance. My bill includes provisions to increase pressure on the regime, but it will also send a message particularly to the military inside of Venezuela and to regime officials. If you want a future in Venezuela and if you want a future free of U.S. sanctions that will follow you anywhere in the world, then you must recognize the legitimate interim president, Juan Guaido, and you must not have blood on your hands. You must not have blood on your hands. However, for our economic and financial sanctions to be truly effective, they must be matched by actions from our allies. We must, by example, uh, encourage our partners to make similar investments. During my travel to Europe, for the Munich Security Conference last month, I took every opportunity to raise Venezuela with European leaders, stressing the importance of coordinating our humanitarian and our sanctions efforts, and the interim president's push to organize new democratic elections. What I would caution is that the support that we have uh, lent uh, unequivocally on Venezuela does not include the use of force. These comments threaten the international consensus that has created an opening for positive change and a return to democracy. Despite our collective hopes, the events of the last several weeks did not lead to the quick win uh, that the administration seemed to expect. As we have learned throughout our history as a nation, confronting tyranny requires sustained commitment. It's increasingly clear that the struggle for democracy and freedom in Venezuela is going to take some time, discipline, and a strategy based on the keen understanding of the complex situation on the ground. But Maduro is not invincible. He's far from it. Since January 23rd, more than 500 soldiers, several high-ranking regime officials have defected, including two generals and the former head of the intelligence service. Moreover, President Guaido further exposed Maduro's weakness by returning to Venezuela on Monday, doing so not by sneaking across the border, but by landing at Caracas's airport. We have a unique opportunity before us. So in closing, uh, I know that I have heard 
that the administration has plan A, B, C, and D. Uh, I look forward to hearing what those are uh, at this hearing so that we uh, can understand how we can strategize together, coordinate together to achieve the ultimate goal, uh, the freedom of the Venezuelan people, the opportunity to restore democracy in Venezuela, uh, and to make it once again uh, a nation among the family of hemispheric nations that observe the rule of law, democracy, and the respect of its people's rights. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. We'll begin with our witnesses, Mr. Abrams. Your microphone. Thank you, uh, Chairman Rubio and Ranking Member Cardin, and Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Menendez, members of the committee. Thanks for the opportunity to testify here. We are witnessing in Venezuela one of the worst humanitarian disasters ever in our hemisphere, as you've said, and the largest displacement of people in Latin American history. Well over three million Venezuelans have fled to neighboring countries. And this crisis is, as has been noted, all man-made by a small and venal group acting without the slightest concern for the people of Venezuela. The Venezuelan people have the commitment of the United States government to work with them as they restore their democracy and rebuild the prosperity of their nation. First, we'll keep building the pressure on Nicolas Maduro. We're putting an end to his regime's use of PDVSA as a source of vast corruption. We've implemented sanctions that are cutting off vital sources of cash to this corrupt regime's pockets. We're applying the full weight of individual sanctions on Maduro's supporters and are revoking their own and their families' visas. We're working with the international community to freeze the regime's bank accounts across the globe. We're also making it clear that it is never too late to change. We will provide off-ramps to those who will support democratic change in Venezuela and do what is right for the Venezuelan people. We have at the same time answered interim President Guaido's call for humanitarian help. I'm sure the administrator will have more to say about that. But um, the total United States support is now just short of $200 million. <clears throat> we have stocked warehouses in Cucuta, Colombia, full of food and basic medicines at the border and are seeking ways of bringing those supplies into Venezuela and having them distributed to people in need. Maduro and his cronies and some of their cheerleaders abroad claim that delivering humanitarian assistance is a political show and a cover for military intervention and a violation of Venezuela's sovereignty. But let's be clear, only the Maduro regime is using violence. Only the regime is shooting at unarmed protesters and aid workers. Only the regime has betrayed Venezuelan independence and sovereignty by submitting to Cuban influence in Venezuela's military security and intelligence agencies, as Chairman Rubio noted. Only the regime uses food and medicine as a political tool for social control. Their repeated mention of military intervention simply a ploy designed to divide the broad, unified international coalition of now 54 countries supporting democracy in Venezuela. It's becoming clear that the great majority of the armed forces and the National Guard do not want to carry out the Maduro regime's shameful orders. And the, the use of armed gangs suggests that Maduro has real doubts about the loyalty of the Venezuelan military. For those members of the armed forces who are still on the fence, fearing retaliation by Maduro's Cuban accomplices, we are asking them to show their pride and patriotism and we believe they have a key role to play in rebuilding their homeland. 
Interim President Guaido and the political parties in Venezuela's legitimate National Assembly have all stated that the transition to a new post-Maduro Venezuela will be a multi-party inclusive process. It will include Chavistas and others of every political background who see a democratic future for Venezuela led by the Venezuelan people, not a Venezuelan dictator and a small corrupt crew. We are grateful for the leadership of our partners in supporting humanitarian assistance for the people of Venezuela and supporting their demand for democracy. We're witnessing a, a historic shift in this hemisphere toward solidarity and shared interests. And with 54 countries that have now recognized Guaido as interim president, we can be proud that we've helped galvanize a global effort to restore democracy and liberty to Venezuela. Each day, courageous Venezuelan patriots, patriots struggle to make Venezuela free, often at their own real peril. And interim President Guaido has injected a new energy into the collective hope of those who want to return to a Venezuela that benefits all Venezuelan citizens, not just Maduro and the inner circle. So Mr. Chairman, we, we stand united behind the Venezuelan people. Like the vast majority of Venezuelans, we believe the time to end Maduro's wholesale destruction of Venezuela is now. And when Venezuelans succeed in ending the dictatorship and restoring liberty, it will show despots and dictators not only in our hemisphere, but in the rest of the world, that people's desire for freedom cannot be extinguished. So thank you, Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, um, Ranking Member Cardin, Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Menendez, uh, for having me here today. I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you. Administrator Green. Chairman Risch and Ranking Member Menendez, Chairman Rubio, Ranking Member Cardin, members of the subcommittee, thank you for this opportunity to discuss the ongoing crisis in Venezuela. And thanks to all of you on both sides of the aisle for your leadership on this very important topic. So one of our challenges this morning uh, may be that we're running out of terms to adequately capture the level of suffering that Venezuelan families are facing each and every day. Hyperinflation, by some estimates approaching 2 million percent. Rampant food shortages have wrecked the ability of countless families to make ends meet. According to the Venezuelan Society of Pediatrics and Child Care, 80% of children under five are in some stage of malnutrition. Nearly 90% of hospitals are experiencing medicine shortages, and almost as many are without reliable power or water. Infectious diseases previously eliminated or controlled are now surging. A diphtheria outbreak that began in July 2016 has now escalated to nearly 1,560 cases, including 270 deaths. All of this affects the larger region. Of the roughly 17,000 measles cases recently diagnosed in the region, most have been traced to outbreaks inside Venezuela. Well over 3 million Venezuelans have already fled into neighboring countries, and as was stated, this is the largest cross-border exodus in the history of the Americas. Of course, the crisis is all the more outrageous because it is entirely man-made and regime-driven. From government takeover of huge sectors of the economy to rampant kleptocracy, from destroying governing checks and balances and civil rights 
to forcing doctors and other professionals to flee, the regime has caused a once prosperous nation to essentially implode. As if all of this weren't enough, Maduro saves some of his worst for his treatment of humanitarian assistance. For one thing, he heartlessly continues to claim in the face of all of the suffering and sorrow that there is no crisis, that his government is already fully providing for the Venezuelan people. As recently as 2016, he claimed the country's health care system was among the best in the world. Far worse, his regime often uses his country's plight to increase his hold on power. He has regularly manipulated social assistance programs to reward supporters, enrich cronies, and influence votes. Credible reports show he has skimmed millions from social welfare programs, and there is evidence that he has used identification cards in ways that tied food assistance to votes and political support for the regime. Needless to say, USAID does not view the Maduro regime or the networks it controls as an appropriate means for delivering relief. However, the good news is that we actually see rays of hope for both a real humanitarian partnership and a more democratic, prosperous future in Venezuela. That good news is the emergence of Juan Guaido as interim president, officially recognized by the U.S. and more than 50 other countries. I have recently spoken with interim president Guaido and his representatives, both by phone and in person. They thanked us for USAID's support for democracy in Venezuela. And that should be particularly gratifying to all of you because of the democracy assistance programs for Venezuela that you've invested in over these last five years on a bipartisan basis. This assistance has supported local organizations working on human rights, civil society, independent media, electoral oversight, and the democratically elected National Assembly. Guaido's team has also requested our assistance in their efforts to begin addressing some of the urgent needs of everyday Venezuelans. USAID, with support from the Departments of Defense and State and others, has responded. First, we're continuing to provide support to the surrounding region in the form of urgently needed food, health care, protection, and shelter to both Venezuelans and host communities. Over the last two years, our assistance has totaled more than $195 million. Second, now that we have a leader with whom we can partner, we have taken steps to preposition humanitarian assistance close to the border for eventual delivery into Venezuela. Since February 4th, the U.S. government has prepositioned more than 525 metric tons of urgently needed humanitarian assistance, food aid, emergency medical items, hygiene kits, water treatment units, and nutrition products. In fact, this very day, Deputy Administrator Bonnie Glick is accompanying our last shipment, our latest shipment of humanitarian assistance, medical supplies aimed at helping hospitals and clinics to Cucuta. The U.S. government is hardly alone. A dozen plus countries have made concrete pledges, and five, including the U.S., have already taken steps to preposition assistance. In addition, we know that private sector sources are also attempting to respond to Guaido's requests. As you are no doubt aware, on February 23rd, Interim President Guaido and courageous Venezuelan volunteers attempted to bring some supplies from the international community, including some from, the, uh, from USAID, a 
across the border. Unfortunately, they were confronted by security forces alongside colectivos. It's clear that the Venezuelan people will not be deterred by Maduro's brutality or cowardice, and neither will the U.S. government. We'll continue to support interim President Guaido's efforts to deliver aid to his people in Venezuela, and we will continue to support Colombia and others that are hosting Venezuelans who have fled. We all recognize that humanitarian assistance, however badly it is needed, is treatment, not cure. It cannot address the root cause of the problem. So long as Maduro and his cronies continue to crush the people, their economy, and their hope, this crisis will worsen. They deserve a return to democracy, rule of law, and citizen responsive governance. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to all of you for your support. With that continued support, we will continue in our efforts to support the people of Venezuela, the interim president, to restore democracy and prosperity. Thank you. I, I'm not going to use the full opening time. I have three quick questions, uh, Mr. Abrams. The first is, is it the policy of the United States to seek a peaceful revolution and transition to democracy? Yes, it is. Do you, and you spend 100% of your time in search of a peaceful transition to democracy. That's correct. Second, uh, the Maduro regime, uh, well, let me ask you this. The, yesterday, Ambassador Bolton put out a statement in which he put foreign financial institutions on notice that they will face sanctions for being involved in facilitating illegitimate transactions. Uh, what kind of uh, sanctions are being contemplated? We have sanctioned um, a number of uh, financial institutions already, and we're going to expand the net. We have under consideration uh, other institutions, which I won't name because we don't want them to get advance notice, but uh, there will be more sanctions on financial institutions <laughs> that are carrying out the orders of the Maduro regime to steal funds from Venezuela and hide it all around the world. And my final question is, uh, Maduro's strategy is to wait us out. He thinks if he can wait long enough, we're going to get distracted and focus on something else. The opposition will fracture, and he'll be able to hold on. It's the one way he's bought himself time. The other is five, four separate instances in which these negotiations, he used them basically to buy time. Uh, will Maduro wait out the United States, or is our commitment on this issue to be on it as long as it takes, and no matter how hard it is? That's our commitment, and I think it's both um, a bipartisan commitment and one that the Congress and the administration share. Thank you. Senator Cardin. As we've all pointed out, there is strong bipartisan support for the administration's policies as it relates to the recognition of the interim president and the people of Venezuela and the illegitimacy of the Maduro regime. This is happening in our hemisphere. Three million people have left Venezuela. Mr. Abrams, I take it that we are supporting the Colombia decision to have an open border so that those that are escaping the tragedy in Venezuela are being welcomed in Colombia. We are, and we're trying to provide some financial support for Colombia to help defray the very large expenses that, that they are undertaking. So I want to ask you a direct question. You know, we are judged not only by our words, but also our actions. And we know that there are Venezuelans coming to our border. In previous times, we've had open borders for those that are escaping persecution. Once they establish themselves 
as leaving an area where they're not safe. They can either use a solemn or we use uh, temporary protective status. We've done both. In some cases, we've had very open policies, the Cubans who came to America. What is the administration's policy in regards to those who are coming to our border? Do you support their being welcomed here in the United States to seek asylum and that they could be protected under a TPS status? Well, we know that uh, that's a great concern of, of yours and Senator Rubio's, who's introduced a bill on this, uh, Mr. Menendez. Um, and we have this policy actually under uh, review right now. I would say that uh, there are 74,000 asylum applications right now from Venezuela. Well, what, what is there to review? Uh, you know, we, we all have pointed out the urgency of this situation. This is not a matter that can wait. So I'm somewhat puzzled as to what there is to review. There are, if one decides uh, to move in that direction, there are a number of ways to do it, administratively, uh, by TPS. So one of the things one has to decide is, what exactly are you going to do once you decide to protect Venezuelans who are here? And as I say, uh, there are 74,000 who are here who've applied for asylum. So they are, in a sense, being protected you might say, by the delays in that process. But, but they have come to the United States, and they're here asking us to uh, allow them to stay here. I, I would just point out, clarity here to me is extremely important. We're asking the region, countries in the region, to make extraordinary sacrifices in order to protect the, the life of people. Our actions will be judged very much by what we do and when you say it's under consideration, that tells me that we are not acting in a timely way. And that presents to me a, a challenge for us and our leadership in that region. Well, thank you, Senator. I will happily take this back to discuss with the Secretary. As you know, it's not only a State Department issue. Uh, it's a DHS issue as well, but um, we'll move forward on that. You mentioned sanctions against financial institutions, and I strongly support what you're doing there. I want to get to individual sanctions, the use of global, Magnitsky, or other sanction tools that we have available. There needs to be a clear message to those who are part of the Maduro machinery, whether they're in the military or not in the military. Are we aggressively using individual sanctions to make it clear that people that are in power under Maduro have a choice? If they follow his leadership, they will be sanctioned, and we will maintain those sanctions and seek international support for those sanctions. But they have an opportunity to do what's right for the people of Venezuela. We are. We've sanctioned dozens of regime officials. There will be more sanctions. Uh, there were about half a dozen more a few days ago. There will be more. There are also visa revocations. I announced 49 last week. The vice president announced 77 more. Uh, regime people and their families who we don't want in the United States. And have we made it clear there's a path forward that if they do what's right for the people of Venezuela? Yes. Be Every time we do this, we note that these uh, visa revocations, for example, and sanctions are all reversible. And, and Ambassador, uh, Administrator Green, I, I want to uh, underscore a point that we talked about yesterday. Yes, we need to provide humanitarian aid to the three million, and we are doing that, and I appreciate that, working with our partners globally. We need to do everything we can to get humanitarian assistance in Venezuela, which is extremely challenging, and we need to do that. 
But you also have to recognize the regional impact, particularly in Colombia, which has over a million. And there's a need there, but also as it affects our plans for Colombia, um, are now impacted. Can Colombia continue its peace process and integration of its communities and economic progress with the impact of the Colombians who have come to their country? Is that on your radar screen? Uh, thank you for the question, and it absolutely is. You're right. Uh, the cost to the other countries in the region is not only the immediate humanitarian cost of assistance, but it affects their economic growth. It affects a number of things. So, yes, we are working with countries in the region, specifically and perhaps most of all with Colombia, to help them with a number of the other challenges that they're taking on. And I would ask that, particularly this budget cycle, that we be engaged on this because it's going to be a challenge for Colombia to meet its goals in regards to their peace commitment. So we would welcome working with you as the tools you need to help make that a reality. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. And I just want to briefly uh, just recognize that we've been joined by Ambassador Vecchio, uh, the legitimate ambassador of Venezuela, uh, recently appointed uh, by interim President Guaido and confirmed by the National Assembly. Thank you for joining us. Senator Barrasso. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, ambassador Green, you know, we all strongly condemn the Maduro regime's violent attacks and murders of civilians seeking humanitarian aid in Venezuela. While the people of Venezuela are enduring a serious humanitarian crisis, uh, Maduro is happy, it seems, to let the people of Venezuela suffer. He is denying food, denying medical care to his own people who are desperately in need of assistance. We know that stockpiles of life-saving assistance, including food and medicine and hygiene kits, are piling up at the border. Colombia and Brazil, the chairman, has been down to help in those efforts. So we strongly all urge Maduro to let humanitarian aid into Venezuela. Could you talk a little bit about just how much, if any, of U.S. humanitarian assistance is actually reaching the Venezuelan people? Well, in, first off, of course, uh, much assistance is reaching those who have fled, as we know, into the neighboring countries. And uh, in terms of those who have remained behind, who are still in Venezuela, uh, we know that there are private sources out there where individuals are providing assistance and taking it across. In terms of the assistance that we're all referring to that was prepositioned in these recent weeks, uh, tragically, on February 23rd, we all saw those events and in the violent confrontation and uh, the two trucks were set on fire. We just recently, in, in the last few days, did a, a complete inventory. The good news is the losses were relatively minor, and so that assistance is being repositioned. Uh, it, it really is up to the leadership of Interim President Guaido. This assistance was pre-positioned at his request, specific request from Guaido to President Trump, Secretary Pompeo, and all of us. And so we are working with him and following his lead. And you know, Senator Cardin used the word urgency, and we all have a sense of urgency. So if a political transition doesn't occur quickly, and um, Maduro continues to prevent humanitarian assistance to his own people, could you talk about the likely impact on this humanitarian situation in Venezuela? I saw a statistic the other day that suggested that in the time that Maduro has been in power, the economy of Venezuela has contracted by 50 percent, 
And the estimation is that if things don't change, it will contract another third this year. So we will see a profound collapse. And it's not even just the availability of, of food and staples. When you have inflation hitting, by some estimates, 2 million percent, nobody has the ability to buy anything anyway. So there will be profound despair and hopelessness. But I will say this, my money continues to be on the Venezuelan people. Uh, I believe Maduro's days are numbered. I don't know what that number is. But when I was down there just last week, the remarkable energy and courage of the Venezuelan people tells me that this will eventually end the right way. And Mr. Abrams, I see you're shaking your head. Yes, about the length of the ability of the Maduro regime to stay in place. You know, the world saw the Assad regime remain in power as a direct result of being propped up by outside countries, such as the military and the financial backing from Russia and from Iran. You know, these countries were willing to support a ruthless dictator, was willing to brutally murder his own people and destroy his own country. As you look at Maduro regimes, the, the frantic attempts going on right now to remain in power, what countries do you see attempting to help keep him in power against the people? The two critical uh, supports, as Senator Rubio said, are um, Russia and Cuba. There are thousands and thousands of Cuban uh, military and intel people all around Maduro. They permeate the regime. Uh, Russia uh, has supplied tens of billions of dollars uh, as soon as we did the PDVSA sanctions, uh, they, Maduro turned to Russia uh, to purchase more oil, to sell the diluents they need to be able to continue uh, exporting oil. So those are the two countries that are really propping up the regime most. And then the final question, because Ambassador Green talked about the economy constricted by 50 percent and another 50 percent coming into the in terms of the, the future. Uh, Mr. Abrams, you know, what economic reforms need to occur you know, into the next administration in order to reverse the destruction of the Maduro regime that he's unleashed on this Venezuela economy? What can people do once he is gone? There are a number of, uh, of plans. Uh, there is a thing called Plan Pais that the National Assembly has. Uh, our own embassy has worked on a plan. Uh, so there are, and there will be, I should say, unquestionably, World Bank and IMF plans that will involve billions of dollars uh, in funds to re construct the economy of Venezuela. The great thing in this case is that this is not fundamentally a bankrupt country. It's a country with, with this incredible resource of petroleum, the greatest in the world. So I think you will find that, that with a change of uh, leadership and a change of economic policy, uh, that there will be lots of people who are ready to invest. And I think the World Bank, the IMF uh, in particular, will be ready to help uh, start that engine. Thank you, Thank you Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, may I just add a, a comment on my friend's uh, response? I think the other um, aspect of this that makes Venezuela different than some of the other challenges that we take on, the Venezuelan diaspora, uh, talented, educated, absolutely devoted to Venezuela, when they return home, and I believe that they will, they will provide a surge of energy into that economy that will uh, uh, greatly mobilize the rebuilding. This is a, um, a, a wonderful, um, uh, there is a generation of leaders who are, are just waiting for the day. I think as we partner with them, we'll see great results. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and let me thank my colleagues of the subcommittee for allowing me to go first. Uh, and, and just one remark, it is rare that the chairman and ranking of the full committee and the attendance on both sides of the aisle that exists as this hearing takes place. I've been around here for a while. I've seen many hearings. Sometimes it's sparse, particularly when it relates to Latin America. I think it speaks volumes about the interest in a bipartisan basis uh, of Congress on this particular issue. Uh, and I want to pick, off a, a pick up a moment from where uh, uh, Administrator Green said, the Venezuelan diaspora is fantastic, incredible. All the more reason we should give them TPS so that they're focused not on the concern that they may be deported to a country while Maduro is there where their lives are risked, but focus on how they build a future for Venezuela. And I think that speaks for another policy reason why temporary protective status uh, is eminently uh, a good policy. Uh, uh, Mr. Abrams, I, I understand from media reports that you have had at least two rounds of secret talks with Maduro's foreign minister, Jorge Ariaza. I'm not going to ask you about the substance uh, in this setting, but can you confirm that these talks took place? Yes, they were supposed to be confidential, but... Uh... <laughs> As so many other things in Washington are yes. supposed to be. So uh, are you and uh, other administration officials discussing Maduro's future with the Cuban regime? No. Uh, have you personally or other members of the administration spoken to the Russian government? I have uh, met with the Russian ambassador. How about the Chinese government? Not yet. Okay. I, I think we need to be sending a very clear message. Whatever investments you made in Maduro, you're not going to get him back under a failed state at the end of the day. Uh, your own interest at the end of the day is in allowing a democratic process to take place that can restore Venezuela to its full vitality economically and otherwise. And I hope we are pushing that message, even with those who are working against us right now and working against President Guaido. We are in our ambassadors in both of those capitals. Can I get a commitment from you to come back sometime next week or soon to provide a classified briefing for the committee on this particular set of subjects? Absolutely. Uh, Secondly, I'd like to see the administration expand its efforts to coordinate sanctions, uh, an issue that will be addressed in my pending legislation. Canada has designated dozens of officials for targeted sanctions. Europe has done some targeted designations and banned arms sales to the Maduro regime. And there are some initial efforts underway in Latin America for which I think we need to help our allies in capacity building on how to enforce sanctions. But for our sanctions to have the greatest impact, as someone who's been the architect of many sanctions, other countries need to match our efforts, in this particular case, with Venezuela debt, gold, cryptocurrency, and oil. What concrete steps are we taking to ensure our partners match our sanctions? This is really a diplomatic effort, and we have been in touch with uh, all 24 of the countries in the EU that uh, recognize Guaido, uh, and countries in Latin America that do as well. Uh, to try to get them, frankly, to do more sanctions and to do more uh, visa revocations. Uh, in many cases, they haven't done any. And there are, uh, as you know, a number of officials in the Maduro regime have sent their families abroad. So we've talked to those countries, for example, why, why allow your country to be a playground for regime officials and their families? We are working on that. Yeah, well, I hope we will focus on those categories that I mentioned because uh, we just had a group of European parliamentarians here. They asked me about Venezuela. Uh, they were in concert with their countries in supporting President Guaido. 
And I urge them that they should engage in the sanctions effort if they want to internationalize an effort to try to create a peaceful transition in Venezuela. Now, Maduro and his cronies have stolen billions of dollars from the Venezuelan people. What steps is the administration willing to take to return stolen assets to, Venez to the Venezuelan people? Uh, separate from what we're doing with oil revenues, should the U.S. or other international stakeholders contemplate setting up a fund to hold assets stolen from the Venezuelan people? I think that's a very a good idea. The first step is to freeze it. That is, it won't be there if Maduro can get his hands on it. And we've taken a lot of steps with governments. I mean, we all know about the Bank of England uh, freezing the gold. We have approached a lot of other governments. We approached several more yesterday, mentioning to those governments named banks and asking them to make sure that Venezuelan people's assets are frozen so that they can't be stolen by the regime. Well, then, something, I, something I intend to do in my legislature, I would love to see work with the administration to work on coordinating that. Finally, uh, Administrator Green, I understand we've provided approximately $195 million in aid to Venezuela and hosting countries. Um, Given that U.S. sanctions are denying the Maduro regime 15 to $25 million in export revenues per day, I think it's safe to say that the U.S. and the international community needs to do more. I am contemplating in my legislation four to $500 million of humanitarian aid. Do you think that that is a reasonable figure? Uh, I, I think it's a start, to be honest. Uh, in terms of what the humanitarian needs are, as you know, Venezuela in some ways is a black box. We have been working with IOM and others to begin to analyze and take a look at what that is, also taking a look at what the down payments are on such things as electoral support for free, fair, credible elections. And uh, this is obviously something, as we know from the number of nations that have recognized Guaido, needs to be a multinational effort. Well, since that's the case, two last points. Why have we not convened a donors conference uh, to bring about uh, the preparations uh, for what is necessary to deal with both the humanitarian disaster and then eventually the reconstruction. And secondly, why don't we uh, you know, purchase goods from Colombia, for example? It's a two-way street. We will help the Venezuelans. We will also strengthen Colombia and uh, help them as they are helping Venezuela uh, and us in this uh, effort. Isn't that something that we should be pursuing? In the uh, early days after my colleague was uh, named, there was an informal donors conference. I agree with you. I think it's a good idea to have a broader, more formal uh, donor conference. I think that's a great way not only of pulling together resources, but making very clear that the world stands behind the future of Venezuela, a democratic future. And in terms of purchasing local, uh, we are doing some of that, and I want to keep doing more of that. I agree with you and, and the way that you're characterizing it. First off, it is an effective and efficient way for us to get assistance uh, more close to the target. But secondly, it does provide some economic support and stimulus for those communities uh, near the Venezuelan border, and that, of course, is a good thing as well. Could I just add, uh, Senator, uh, there was on February 14th a conference at the OAS in which a number of uh, particularly European countries announced uh, pledges. Um, so we've taken step one, uh, but as Administrator Green says, we need to do a more formal effort. 
Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Abrams, Ambassador Green, for your service. Uh, commend you for the work that you are doing uh, on this incredibly important and humanitarian uh, and uh, leadership example. Uh, the illegitimate Maduro regime has shown a depraved indifference to human life, to the human condition, to the people of Venezuela, to the Venezuelan nation. Uh, but I sense a, a great deal of energy in the people who are in this room, uh, Interim President Guaido, and the opportunity is ahead for a future in Venezuela that Maduro has deprived and taken uh, from the people. So there's obviously more that Congress can do, obviously more that Congress must do, obviously Congress uh, will do more. But the full faith, the power, might of the United States behind the people of Venezuela in this effort, I think is incredible. 54 nations around the globe gathered together uh, in this effort. We obviously need more. We need more nations to do more, to step up. The donors that Senator Menendez talked about, donor nations that Senator Menendez, Menendez talked about, the sanctions, the efforts to strongly condemn, to expel, uh, to take uh, and deprive this regime of the funds that it's using to continue its atrocities against its own people. Um, what, what more can we do as a Congress to encourage other nations to join this, uh, this coalition in the right? Maybe this is undiplomatic, but I think there are a number of nations, some in the Caribbean and a couple in Europe, that have not yet recognized uh, Juan Guaido. I think if, actually, if you in this committee talk to the ambassadors of those nations, it doesn't happen every day, and I think that your conversation, your pressure would immediately get telegraphed back to those capitals and could make a difference. Ambassador. Quite frankly, this hearing, and I think having more hearings like this and uh, congressional visits down to some of the nations that, as uh, Mr. Abrams pointed to, are perhaps on the fence and need to do more. I think the, the show of clear bipartisan support is essential. To make it very clear, this is not about one administration, U.S. administration, but this is the position of the American people over and over again everywhere you can. And I hope that uh, as people are listening to this hearing, as people read the transcripts, that they know there is no sideline to sit on, to stand on, that this is a call for action, this is a call for help, this is a call for recognition uh, for the people of Venezuela uh, and the legitimate regime uh, that will come and the interim president, Guaido. Uh, the, you mentioned, uh, Mr. Abrams, uh, Russia, Cuba. Could you talk a little bit more about China? Uh, and their role, their interests, uh, what they are doing right now in Venezuela? China has lent uh, a lot of money to the Maduro regime. In the United Nations, we did see them twice join the Russians in vetoes. Uh, I had hoped that they might move to uh, abstaining, but they haven't. Uh, and we've made the argument, as Senator Menendez said, that, that they're not going to get their money back from a bankrupt Venezuela. They're only going to get it back from a Venezuela uh, that's prosperous. They have differentiated themselves from the Russians, I guess I'd say rhetorically, in that the Russians are using really Cold War rhetoric about American imperialism and colonialism and so forth. The Chinese seem to view this more as a commercial proposition. They want their money back. Uh, so we continue to push them to make what seems to us the only logical leap here, that then you should be in favor of steps that will bring Venezuela back to prosperity. Thank you. Ambassador Green, anything you want to add to that? Uh, well, I certainly agree with everything that my colleague has said. 
again, I, I think what's we need to do over and over again is make clear what our purpose is. Our purpose is to restore democracy. It is to give the people of Venezuela the chance to choose their own future. And that's what we seek to do. And of course, that's a very different model and a very different approach from China, Russia, Cuba, and others. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Mr. Abrams, you mentioned that the talks were uh, supposed to be in confidence or at least uh, not be discussed, but uh, I'm reminded of a saying that I've heard that Washington is the only place where sound travels faster than light. So uh, thank you uh, for your time and hearing this morning. Thank you. Senator Udon. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman and the ranking member for these hearings, and thank you uh, to the witnesses for being here. There, there is uh, no doubt that the Maduro regime has caused widespread misery and suffering in Venezuela, and uh, his followers are leading the country down the path to more violence and repression of the Venezuelan people. The United States should work with its partners in the region to restore democratic order and to reduce the threat of increased violence in Venezuela and throughout the region. However, I'm mindful of the long history of U.S. interventions in the region. And, uh, and that history is part of the historical memory of Latin America as well. U.S. sanctions have given Maduro and Chavez before him an easy scapegoat for their own failures. They blame their people suffering on, quote, Yankees. Now, the President of the United States, some members of Congress, and others are issuing veiled threats of U.S. military intervention and regime change by force. Shannon O'Neill, a Council on Foreign Relations expert on Latin America and friend of this committee and a witness before this committee, wrote about this regarding the prospect of military intervention. She says, Venezuela isn't Granada or Panama, the two Latin American countries invaded by the U.S. during the closing days of the Cold War. Instead, it is twice the size of Iraq with only a slightly smaller population and teeters on the verge of chaos. Any invasion requires preparations on a similar scale, meaning a 100,000-plus force. U.S. troops are unlikely to be welcomed, a February poll shows a majority of Venezuelans, including a plurality of those in Venezuela's opposition, oppose an invasion. A U.S. military presence would play into and would at least in part validate Maduro's loudly proclaimed imperialist conspiracies. And I believe that on the second panel, uh, one of our witnesses, Cynthia Aronson, uh, has come to a similar conclusion in terms of military intervention. Do either of you believe that a military solution led by the United States is a solution to this crisis? It is certainly not desirable, and it is not the path the administration is taking. Yeah. Best way I can answer that is to say I have been part of absolutely no conversations whatsoever that have talked about military intervention. Okay. Do you agree that any military invention would need to be approved by this Congress? Well, now we're getting into uh, a War Powers Act question that, that, and hypotheticals about what might lead to a military intervention, and I, uh, I think I should probably not do that, certainly not in an open hearing. Oh, well, Mr. Abrams, so there's a this simple principle, you know, that I think people that, that uh, study our Constitution understand that the Congress 
the Congress is the one to declare war. And that's basically what I'm asking you about. Do you understand that? I understand the, the President's Article II authority, but in, in terms of us being threatened or having an imminent threat, but, but that's what I'm asking you about. Do you, uh, uh, do you agree if we were going to uh, go in there in an intervention and declare war that it's the Congress that has to do that. Uh, you know, I remember President Clinton's intervention into, say, Kosovo, and there was a big debate about the War Powers Act, and I'm just not prepared really to get into that debate that I'm not well, the I'm right not person. debating the War Powers Act. I'm I, talking about the constitutional authority of the Congress to be the one that declares war that determines interventions. That, you know, you have the constitutional authority to declare war, you have the president's authority as commander-in-chief, and that would be a great subject for a hearing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Well, I, I, the chairman was here earlier, and I'm sure the subcommittee chairman will pass that on, and I'll try to do the same. Uh, do, you, uh, do you think that a civil war would make life better for the Venezuelan people, either one of you? No, clearly not. Mark? No. Is, is the um, State Department working with Treasury to help mitigate the impact of sanctions on the Venezuelan people, as far as you know? And in light of how the Maduro government has weaponized the propaganda of Yankee imperialism, what is your plan to counter those charges against the American government and the Lima Group, who, Lima group who we are, are supporting? Well, we are working with Treasury. I'd say we're especially working with uh, USAID on the question of, of uh, trying to make sure that the sanctions affect the regime but not the Venezuelan people. As to the broader question, I'm struck by the unity that there really is. The history that you've mentioned has not prevented most of the democracies of Latin America uh, and Europe in joining Canada and the United States in kind of uh, hemispheric and Western uh, unity. It's reflected in bipartisan unity here, so the, the regimes arguments about, you know, gringos and Yankee imperialism and so forth are at this point, 2019, really falling uh, without much impact. The, the, uh, I would just like to quote, because I may not be here for the, the, uh, the, this keeping the military option on the table and all of that kind of thing and keeping them off balance. Our next witness in the next panel says, but this threat has eroded the consensus between the United States hemispheric democracies and the countries of Europe over how to approach the Venezuelan crisis. And that's why I'm asking these questions to try to get to the heart of where the administration's really at. I mean, you have, on the one hand, we see a remarkable thing here where the president is the most aggressive in terms of using force, and yet many of the administration officials that appear before us in a variety of contexts and different committees have a totally different line. And so it's a, it's a, it's a little bit of a, a very difficult situation for us to kind of come to grips with this when you have, we can't call him down here in front of committee, but we, we can get you down here. And so there's a, there's a stark difference that's there. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Appreciate the courtesies of running over a little bit. Mr. Abrams, has any of our international partners uh, told us that they don't want to work with us until President, stop saying all options are on the table. No, none have. And uh, are there any armed elements of the opposition? Yeah. Yes. Uh, is there an is there an armed opposition group? In the this is, there's no. Uh, there is not. The opposition under 
it's not really the opposition anymore, let's say the legitimate right. leadership under President Guaido wants exclusively peaceful change. Okay. Senator, Senator Shaheen. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I just thank you both, first of all, for being here today and for what you're doing in this very difficult situation. I, I just want to follow up on Senator Udall's question just to be very clear because I didn't hear either of you answer it in this way. Are you, either of you, aware of any plans within the administration for any military action in Venezuela, Mr. Abrams? No, not, not in the sense you mean it. I mean, there are all these contingency plans. Um, I don't know how much to get into this in an open hearing, but for example, for the protection of every single U.S. embassy around the world, there are always such plans. But uh, we are not pursuing that path. Mr. Green. I am not. No. Thank you. Um, the discussion this morning has been very eloquent about the terrible tragedy that's happening in Venezuela and about the humanitarian disaster there. Um, but the status of women has not been mentioned, and I think it's important to do that because there are more reports coming out um, about the violence that women are facing in Venezuela um, that women are facing as they cross the border into Colombia. The International Refugee Committee has reported that increasing numbers of women and children are fleeing and that as they're fleeing, they're facing a unique set of risks around sexual assault, um, kidnapping, harassment, that many women have turned to sex work to support their families. So I wonder, Mr. Green, if you could talk about how U.S. assistance is being directed towards the women and children specifically who are being affected. Uh, thank you for the question. And I, and I will say in my most recent trip down to Kukata and the centers that I visited, it was a disproportionately large number of young mothers who, who were there, very, very clear. And they felt special pain not only pain for what they're going through, but what they're going through for their families. And it really was uh, heartbreaking, to be honest. In terms of, of specifics and in, 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 in targeted assistance in that way, part of it is the hygiene supplies that we preposition and supply. But secondly, you're pointing to something that's very important, I don't think very well covered. And that is these poor people, as they flee tyranny, uh, and hunger and so on and so forth, they're very easily exploited. And so we are working in those communities along the border and in other places where we know uh, Venezuelans are fleeing too, to try to reinforce and provide some level of protection and counseling and places for them to go. It's just one more dark, you know, gloomy part of this terrible crisis. If I could add, Senator, I have the TIP report with me, and as well as a um, Tier 3 country, it does not meet minimum standards, and the report itself says Venezuela is a source and destination country for men, women, and children subjected to sex trafficking and forced labor. So it's a, it's a real problem. Um, thank you. It's, it's just awful, and it reflects again the fact that in conflict areas that it's women and children who usually bear the brunt of that conflict. 
and this is another example of that. And I think another reason why it's so important that legislation like the Women, Peace, and Security Act that asks that women be at the table when we are negotiating ends to conflicts are so important um, because we know that that means that the whatever is negotiated lasts longer, and it also means that there is a less lower likelihood that women then will continue to um, be placed in positions where they're the victims of so many of the issues, sex trafficking, um, sexual assault, um, all of those concerns. So again, thank you both very much for what you're doing. Senator Kane. Um, thank you, Mr. Chair, and to the witnesses for very uh, helpful testimony. I want to just acknowledge and applaud uh, the release of a Virginia journalist, Cody Weddle, who was from Meadowview, Virginia, Virginia Tech alumni who's been in Venezuela reporting independently there for a number of years, was arrested, interrogated, and was released overnight. That's good news. I want to follow up on comments of my colleagues on this side of the aisle about military threat. Having lived in Latin America, this, this notion of blaming problems on Uncle Sam, on Imperialismo Yankee is, is very, very serious. And the President's comments about military threat, I think, are a horrible idea. I actually think generally the strategy, sanctions, the work that you've done to cobble together the global coalition, I think, is very, very good. I think it really creates problems, though, if, it, if the message gets mixed with a potential military threat. I have the same concern Senator Udall raised about who it is that initiates war. It's Congress, not the President, unless there's an imminent threat in the United States, I believe. But more than that, I think um, loose talk about military action actually cements and emboldens dictators. They want to be able to blame their problems on Uncle Sam, on, the Ameri on America, on the West. They would love to be able to blame it on somebody else. As they're running an economy into the ground, whether it's Putin in Russia or Maduro in Venezuela, they would love to be able to blame their own mismanagement and failings on others. And any loose talk about military action brings up this whole history of U.S. military intervention. It, it, it gives a Maduro the ability to claim that the U.S. is interested in petroleum or whatever else. And I think it's just really important that we stress what our interest is. The only interest we have is peace, liberty, and democracy for the Venezuelan people. That's it. El único interés que tenemos es la paz, la libertad y la democracia para el pueblo venezolano. Solo eso. Not military, not oil. There's nothing we want for ourselves. We only want peace, liberty, and democracy for the Venezuelan people. And I think we need to stress that very clearly. I want to ask you about, you, you referenced briefly the OAS, and I'd kind of like to dig into this, because I think you gave us maybe a good suggestion. I, I'm troubled by the number of Caribbean nations that have not been supportive of this global coalition. And I read that as a challenge, largely kind of petroleum politics, that Venezuela has used petroleum reserves to purchase their loyalty. You can kind of understand that in a real politique. I think dialogue is important, and, and there's an awful lot that we can offer, too, to convince some of those nations to hopefully join the global coalition in support of the interim government and the constitutionally dictated transition to elections and a new government. What, so dialogue with the nations that we're talking about, um, what are other strategies that you might suggest for us or what is the administration pursuing in terms of dialogue with nations, especially those in the OAS, to make sure that there's more of a consensus within this important hemispheric organization to help us out? 
we do have uh, something approaching a consensus on the Latin American side, not on the Caribbean side. Right. And it's been disappointing because all those countries are democracies. Mm -hmm. And I think it's for the reasons that you state, uh, debt especially, and in some cases, joint ventures with uh, PDVSA over the years. Mm -hmm. uh, we continue in all those capitals to push them. Uh, the principal deputy in, in the Latin America Bureau is in the Eastern Caribbean right now, mm -hmm. uh, personally pressing the leadership to see if we can move them. Again, I would say hearing from members of this committee, uh, talking to their ambassadors so they can bring that home would be useful. And we are working with them. Uh, Treasury has been working with them uh, and the Energy Department to see, tell us what the problem is. Tell us what you're afraid of. And maybe we can maybe we can help you. And in the case, for example, of Jamaica recently, uh, they they undertook a few transactions that would um, that would reduce their ties, let's say, to mm -hmm. uh, to Pedavesa in a very useful way, so they get out from under. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you. Green. Yeah, thank you, Senator. I think one of the ways that we do this is to make sure that our humanitarian foot is forward. Right. And so, in the case, uh, for example, of Trinidad and Tobago. We have provided $1.6 million in assistance to help identify the needs of the Venezuelans who have come to the islands, uh, looking for ways to tackle the issues of crime and violence and human trafficking, and, and to try to lower the burden, quite frankly, that they're feeling. So it is something that we're doing regionally. I, I will tell you this, I, I think the impact of the uh, Venezuelan flight in the Caribbean is something that people don't quite appreciate. Mm -hmm. Last year at the OAS, or at the uh, Summit of the Americas, we were beginning to hear it, and that was now many months ago. Mm -hmm. I'm sure the numbers have gone way up. It is something uh, where we can reach out, we can provide some support, and I think that will be very helpful. That's very helpful. Thank you. Thanks, Mr. Chair. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Gentlemen, good morning. Thank you for your good work. Um, Globally, gold has become a key way that, that bad actors conduct illicit financial activities. In Venezuela, the gold trade is Maduro's best and perhaps, perhaps his last lifeline. In 2018 alone, Venezuela exported $900 million worth of gold to Turkey. According to the U.S. Treasury Department, Turkey has been making large purchases of gold, almost certainly including illicit purchases from Venezuela. To cut off this lifeline, I've introduced a bill, along with Chairman Rubio, that says if a country or bank conducts precious metal transactions that are subject to sanctions, as moving gold for Venezuela or Iran would be, that the Secretary of Treasury can take those transactions into account when deciding about a broader conclusion that such country or bank shall be designated as a jurisdiction of primary money laundering concern. Uh, Mr. Abrams. Can you please describe the role that illicit gold and precious metals transactions plays in, in sustaining the Maduro regime? Uh, thanks, Senator. It's critical. What we did on PDVSA cut off a lot of cash. The oil they were uh, giving to Russia and China was to offset previous debts. They weren't getting cash. So they lose that cash. Where can they find cash today? Gold is a, one of the very few places, and it's the biggest one. I understand that the administration is in possession of a list of Turkish en entities that are moving gold for Venezuela uh, based on publicly sourced information. 
Can you outline how the administration intends to approach these and, and other bad actors? First, we talk to the governments in question and in some cases the enterprises in question, in almost every case, to say you ought to stop doing this. You ought to stop doing it because it's wrong and you ought to stop doing it because there are going to be sanctions. <clears throat> Pardon me. And we've had some success in other areas of the world in getting companies to say, okay, we don't want to be at risk of sanctions, we'll stop. We have not had that success in the case of uh, gold sales uh, in the Middle East more generally. Mr. Green, uh, what initiatives can USAID encourage in Venezuela or other partners in the region to deter Maduro's illicit mining and trade of gold and, and to safeguard the supply chain for Venezuelans? Thank you, Senator. Uh, Actually, in, in countries like Colombia and Peru, we have well-developed, successful licit mining programs uh, which use environmentally sound methods for mining. Secondly, uh, because it's licit, it actually provides a revenue source that can be reinvested in the communities and creates good-paying jobs and chokes off the source of illicit uh, gold revenues that we know that uh, narcos and criminal gangs too often use. So uh, I would propose in that day after in Venezuela that we ramp up investments like this. Uh, this is a way of creating very good paying jobs around which you can raise families and build communities. Thank you. Uh, Maduro's regime has been holding six sit-go employees, including five U.S. citizens uh, who live in Texas for, for over a year now. The Sitco executives have been detained on baseless charges and subjected to harsh imprisonment. It is well past time to secure their release, and it is my hope that the new Venezuelan government will work with the U.S. to swiftly ensure their safe return. Uh, Mr. Abrams, is the administration in discussions with either the Guaido administration or the Maduro regime? on the imprisonment of the Sitco executives who are U.S. dual nationals? And, and can you describe uh, what efforts are being made to secure their release? As you know, Senator, we are unable to get consular access to them. Uh, the position of the uh, regime is, uh, because they are also Venezuelan citizens, you don't get to see them. So we've not been able to do that. It's also true that uh, the church in Venezuela has asked to see them on kind of pastoral visit, refused. No. Um, we're in touch with the families. Uh, we keep pressing the, the regime because there are two court orders for their release, which the regime simply refuses to implement. So we keep pressing. We do keep raising it. I'm absolutely confident that at the point at which uh, interim president Guaido uh, takes over, uh, their release will be very rapid. Well, good, and I would encourage you to continue to make that a high priority. Uh, a, a final question for both of you. Um, this is a pivotal time in Venezuela's history. It's a time with enormous opportunity, but also enormous risk. Uh, there are some 3,000 generals in Venezuela. Each of those generals now has to decide with whom he stands, with the illegitimate and oppressive Maduro regime or with the legitimate and recognize Guaido government. Uh, what do both of you believe could be effective both carrots and sticks 
for those 3,000 generals to encourage them to stand on the right side of history with the people of Venezuela and not to support a dictator on his way out the door? Well, I'd, I'd say there are <clears throat> two parts to that, the Venezuelan part and the American part. Uh, the uh, legitimate National Assembly has passed a transition law that speaks of amnesty, <coughs> pardon me, and there are further debates in the National Assembly in Venezuela about um, saying more about that, uh, being more detailed about what an amnesty would consist of. On our part, we've made it very clear that uh, sanctions can be removed. Visa revocations can be reversed and visas can be granted. For those who are actually uh, indicted, that's a different story, indicted or convicted. They, they should have their lawyers deal with the Department of Justice. But from the Treasury and State point of view, these things are uh, reversible and we are trying to make the argument, and more importantly, uh, President Guaido and the National Assembly are making the argument that they are open to those who are willing to change. Thank you. I want to uh, thank uh, both of you for being here today. We want to get to our second panel. We appreciate the work you're doing and the time you've given us this morning. And um, we, we thank you again for, for being with us. And while we transition, I'm going to go ahead and, and, and present our second panel. And I know we have a vote in about 45 minutes. So I would only uh, strongly encourage our witnesses. We've got your written testimony. I think you both are veterans of, of, um, of appearing in the, in the committee. and. Um, and so uh, we've already uh, introduced a witness previously. I want to uh, Since our non-government experts, I'll introduce them as they take their seat here quickly. Uh, the first is Mr. Eric Farnsworth, the Vice President of the Council of the Americas, and Dr. Cynthia Aronson, who is the Director of the Wilson Center's Latin America program. And I ask those who are here to, to see the hearing if you would uh, take your seats or transition out, because we uh, I want to make sure whoever stays gets their questions in. I want to make sure our testimony is in. So, Dr. Arnson, we'll start with you, if that's okay. Are you ready? Thank you both for being here. Great. Thank you, Chairman Rubio, Ranking Member Cardin, members of the subcommittee, Senator Menendez, who's joining us from Senate Foreign Relations. Um, it's a privilege to be here. I think both sides of the aisle have adequately described the disaster, humanitarian, economic, political, that Venezuela has come, so I will skip over that part of my testimony and instead focus on the options for U.S. policy, both their advantages and their risks. Um, first, sanctions. Uh, building on the actions that started under the Obama administration and now uh, intensified by the Trump administration, there has been a dramatic escalation in the range of individual, financial, and now petroleum sanctions on Venezuela. The purpose is obviously to increase substantially and unacceptably the political and economic and personal costs of the status quo such that people who support the regime currently might be impelled to break with them. It appears that uh, the pressures are aimed at, at creating fissures in the armed forces, which, as we all know, are Maduro's key source of support. 
these divisions could emerge, some have already, small ones in the leadership, um, or become more pronounced, especially as the economic sanctions are in place for a longer period of time um, and have uh, a greater impact. Um, however, there is no guarantee that even the most punishing sanctions will serve to divide the military hierarchy. And there is, in fact, a risk that these sanctions, as has been discussed, I think, by Senator Kane a moment ago, will contribute to greater internal coherence of the regime, a kind of circling of the wagons against foreign efforts. There's also the devastating humanitarian co uh, human cost um, of the oil sanctions. So I believe that the issue of humanitarian aid um, needs to be depoliticized. It must adhere to the principles of neutrality, impartiality, independence, and I believe that the United Nations, many of its agencies, UNICEF, uh, the World Health Organization, the local Red Cross, the International Committee of the Red Cross, and other relief organizations on the ground in Venezuela are best positioned to provide expanded assistance. Many of you have made reference to the impact of the flow of Venezuelan refugees on the countries of the region. I won't go over the numbers. Um, we just heard from USAID Administrator Mark Green, um, and uh, between USAID and the State Department's Bureau of Population, Refugees, and Migration, the United States has pledged a significant amount of assistance, but it is still a fraction of the $738 million that are called for in, in 2019 alone, called for by the UN Regional Refugee and Migrant Response Plan, a joint program of, of uh, the United Nations High Commission for Refuge Refugees and uh, the International Organization of Migration. Colombia alone, according to that report, requires 315 million, which is more than double what the United States has provided to the entire region. I believe that we should um, uh, actions behind our words and provide resources that are commensurate with our capacity and our stated uh, foreign policy objectives. I commend Senator Rubio, Senator Menendez, people on both sides of the aisle who have encouraged the administration to grant temporary protective protected status, but this should be coupled with an expedited review of asylum claims, and another option is to raise the highly restrictive cap on refugee admissions to the United States, which in the year 2019 hit a historic low. I will not go over the issue of military intervention. I think my remarks have already been um, quoted by, by Senator Udall. I think continued talk of a military option as much as it um, is useful in keeping the regime off balance, is irresponsible, would spark a regional war, and be an incentive for guerrilla, Colombian guerrillas from the ELN, the FARC, those who refused to demobilize, and perhaps even some of those who did demobilize to join up arms against that. So it's possible that the combination of all of the pressures, diplomatic, economic, um, that the United States and the international community have brought to bear can bring about a change of government um, in Venezuela or even the collapse of the authoritarian regime. I believe, however, that it is also possible that it will survive, much as Assad's Syria has survived, becoming even more repressive in its determination to cling to power, expelling more of its citizens, and turning further to allies such as Russia, Turkey, Cuba, as it seeks survival. So I share the goal that many have stated that policy of the United States and of the international community should be to create the conditions for a free, fair election in Venezuela in which the opposition can 
openly compete without disadvantage and take office should it win. Um, that goal will require institutional reform, especially of the Electoral Council. It probably also requires international observation and supervision. I don't believe it requires the end of Chavismo as a political force. I was heartened to hear people um, reiterate that concept, um, and it does foresee its integration into a functioning and pluralistic democracy. I do not believe that a transition requires the immediate purging of the military or even the extradition of Venezuelan officials indicted by the United States to face justice in this country. These are not questions about which there is any ambivalence in the moral or ethical sense. These are strictly practical um, considerations how one provides an off-ramp for those who are currently allied with the regime to break with them. Negotiations in Venezuela have acquired a very bad name. They've been tried for many years. The Maduro regime has used them to buy time, divide the opposition, and avoid concessions. And I would put on the table now the question as to whether a herding stalemate, a concept that is mostly used in conflict resolution, is at hand. I believe that it is, and I believe that one, one possible vehicle um, is the European Union led with Latin American Participation International Contact Group, which does not talk about negotiations. It, cre it talks about creating the conditions for a free and fair election as the subject uh, of talks with the government. Thank you very much. Mr. Farnsworth. Well, Mr. Chairman, good morning. And good morning to uh, Mr. Ranking Member, Mr. Menendez, uh, Mr. Cruz, and from my home state of Virginia, of course, Mr. Kane. So thank you for the invitation again to uh, appear before all of you. It's a real privilege. Before I uh, begin my remarks, let me reiterate comments that have already been men, uh, made by several members of the subcommittee about the bipartisan nature of this issue. This is huge. It's fundamental, and it puts the United States uh, behind this effort. Uh, and I think, uh, first of all, that's critically important, but second, I want to thank the members of the subcommittee in particular for your leadership uh, and for the way that you have positioned this issue. I believe that that is fundamental and very, very important, so thank you. Let me give you the bottom line first, if I may. I believe Chavismo has turned Venezuela into a ruined state. The nation that boasts the world's largest proven oil reserves is an economic basket case, racked by hyperinflation, shrinking economic growth, food and medical shortages, and criminal bans, that, including officially sanctioned drug traffickers and street crime. The private sector is prostrate and investment has essentially dried up. Oil production, which is the lifeblood of the economy, has collapsed through lack of investment, unimaginable corruption, and uh, the loss of essential human capital. Abundant natural resources such as gold, which we've already heard about, are being plundered, leading to a full-scale assault on Venezuela's fragile Amazonian ecosystem. As the economy has soured, Nicolas Maduro has tightened control. Every institution except the National Assembly has been bent to his will. The rule of law has been thoroughly corrupted. The press has been co-opted or muzzled, and journalists harassed and detained. And we've already heard about uh, Corey Weddle and uh, Jorge Ramos in this hearing this morning. Social media is being monitored actively. Venezuela's intelligence and security services and other state functions are strongly influenced, if not directed, by thousands of Cubans embedded in the regime. Mr. Chairman, outsiders have already intervened in Venezuela and continue to do so. 
With more than 10% of Venezuela's total population now outside the nation and more leaving every day, we are witnessing the worst man-made humanitarian tragedy of the modern era in the Western Hemisphere. The United States has received thousands of Venezuelans and bipartisan legislation has been introduced. We've already talked about this to provide TPS to some 72,000 Venezuelans who are already here. The dramatic return to Venezuela this week of interim President Juan Guaido has given renewed hope to the Venezuelan people. His task, moving Venezuela toward free and fair elections, is greatly complicated by Maduro's continued occupation of Miraflores Palace. With, Mir with Maduro's departure, it would be possible to contemplate a successful relaunch of Venezuela's democratic system, including the release of political prisoners, restoring press freedoms, and depoliticizing electoral mechanisms, and that's just the beginning. Reconstruction will also be long and arduous. The new government will require breathing room to get itself established, no doubt. Quick dispersing aid from the international community is therefore essential. Citizens of Venezuela must be convinced that their lives will meaningfully improve under democracy. Transparency and enforceable rule of law are key to this issue. It will be of little benefit, in my view, to replace existing corruption with new corruption. Faith in the new democratic government can, will be fragile and can easily be destroyed without attention to such issues. Venezuela was, at one point, Latin America's wealthiest nation. Someday, it may be again. Meanwhile, the humanitarian tragedy caused by Chavismo and its leaders gets worse every day. The Maduro regime has shown it would rather kill its own people than allow foreign aid into the country to help them. Continually escalating sanctions, including visa restrictions, are therefore an appropriate response. Ultimately, however, the regime will have to depart for lasting recovery and true reconstruction to begin. Mr. Chairman, I want to thank you again today for the opportunity to testify before you and the subcommittee, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Senator Carpenter. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I want to thank both of our witnesses, and I th again, thank you for your patience. Uh, it's important that we have the, the views not only from our government witnesses, but from the private sector. And, and Dr. Aronson, I just want to um, underscore the point that you made uh, that's been talked about by several of the members, and that is the keeping all options on the table and, and the potential use of U.S. military, which I would strongly disagree with at this point. But just underscore the point that you made in your statement that it would erode the consensus between the United States hemisphere democ democrat democracies and the countries of Europe over how to approach the Venezuelan crisis. And then secondly, you point out one should not under underestimate the dr drastic consequences for regional stability should it occur. Uh, I think we all share those sentiments and I, I was pleased to see the response from the government witnesses as to um, the um, uh, no planning on the use of military. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I want to start with the same question that I asked the, the previous panel, which is we're at a potential tipping point in Venezuela, and in particular the military and the generals have to make a decision with whom to stand. Uh, in both of your opinions and judgment, what carrots or sticks would have the greatest impact in speeding along the exit of Maduro and a transition to a democratically elected and legitimate regime? Thank you, Senator Cruz. I agree with the uh, implications of the question that the real arbiter on the ground uh, in Venezuela is the military and those with the guns, which is the uh, 
monopoly of the regime at this point. Uh, so at some point you have to uh, either get them to stand down or switch sides and switch their allegiance to uh, Mr. Guaido as the interim president. Um, these are individual decisions. Uh, these are decisions that are made uh, based on uh, people's uh, best guess for their own uh, prospects and that of their family. And our understanding is that many of the people who remain quote-unquote loyal to the regime are not doing so because they particularly like Mr. Maduro or even like his social project or whatever it is, but because they're afraid. They're afraid that they'll uh, obviously lose their jobs and their pensions, but they might actually be killed. And the way that the security services are being monitored, uh, not just by the Venezuelans, but also by some of their outside advisors, uh, there is a real sense of who may be looking to um, uh, create conditions for, uh, to try to overthrow the government or leave or what have you. So it's a very delicate situation. What can the United States and the international community do? I think we can continue, as was uh, discussed in the previous panel, to, uh, to uh, express openness that those who do not have blood on their hands, those who have not participated in human rights abuses, uh, would be welcomed into a new Venezuela. I think that's absolutely appropriate. But I think at the end of the day, the people have to understand that there will be change in Venezuela because they want to be on the winning side. They want to be on the side that's left standing. And if they think that Mr. Maduro will have the opportunity to remain forever, then the, then, then the choice to switch their allegiance to Mr. Guaido becomes that much more fraught. And if they believe that Mr. Guaido, in fact, will be ascending to real power in the Miraflores Palace, then the decision in some way becomes a little bit easier. I'm not saying it's easy, but it will be easier. So to the extent that the international community can continue to show the commitment for real and lasting democracy in Venezuela, I believe that's the most potent thing that we could do at this time. Um, I'd like to add to that. It's going to be very difficult, I think, to break the, the high command, the... I think the number, the number that I've heard is 2,000, Senator uh, Cruz, not 3,000, but it's still, it's a substantial number, and whatever it is, it's at least double, if not triple, um, what we have in the United States in an armed force that's hugely bigger. Um, I'm, I recall that in the Chilean transition, um, General Pinochet, who subsequently was uh, made to stand trial for his crimes of, of torture and, and killing of political opponents, um, remained as the head of the armed forces and then became a senator for life. So I think that there are things that are done at the outset of a transition that are deeply distasteful, repugnant, but nonetheless, um, I also recall the words of a great teacher, friend, jurist uh, from Chile who headed their Truth Commission, Jose Zalaquet, who talked about the ethics of responsibility, which is to say that we are not talking necessarily about pure justice right away. Obviously, everyone should have to pay for crimes against humanity, for torture, for killing, um, for the kind, the levels of corruption and drug trafficking that they've engaged in. But what you can accomplish initially as you have a transitional government leading to elections is very different from what can, um, I think, occur down the line. And I think the United States has an important role to play in this. Again, as distasteful and contrary to the whole concept of the rule of law um, that this may seem, if people feel that if they change or if they somehow 
um, agree to break with the regime, what awaits them is a, is a supermax jail cell in the United States. You will never see the movement of those people. So I think we have to think in very pragmatic terms, not in absolutist terms, um, be flexible, but also listen to what the Venezuelan opposition is doing in terms of speaking to the military, making that outreach, because it's clear that the, office, that the offer of amnesty has not yet been sufficient. So one, one additional question. Mr. Farnsworth, you made reference to the Cuban soldiers and thugs that are on the ground in, in Venezuela. Can, can you detail a bit more the, the malign influence that Cuba is having propping up uh, the Maduro regime? From what I know from outside open sources, uh, they've been very active, particularly in the security services, uh, offering not just guidance uh, in terms of how to organize intelligence operations, but also uh, helping the Venezuelans carry them out in some cases. They've also been active in state functions, such as passport agencies and uh, authorities, so that they know who's coming in and out of the country. Uh, and these are reports from, from folks, uh, open source, etc. Um, you don't need a whole lot of people uh, from outside the country to do a lot of damage if they are embedded in the most sensitive areas of the government and the areas that have control uh, of the population. And this is what the Cubans have primarily focused on, is my understanding. So with that in mind, it's become a very uh, complicated effort. And to try to get some of these folks, uh, Venezuelans, who may quote-unquote want to do the right thing, uh, it's, they don't know who's watching them. They don't know what information they, ha you know, they have uh, on them. They don't know who's watching their families. It's a really complicated and difficult scenario. Thank you. Mr. Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I, I really don't, first of all, I want to thank our witnesses for their longstanding uh, sharing of uh, their knowledge with the committee over many different issues over many different times. I really just want to make a statement. Uh, I, um, I, understand the concern uh, of many, including some of my colleagues, uh, about uh, military intervention in Venezuela. But I am concerned that in the process of those of that constant refrain that we lose sight of who the Venezuelan people have to have real fear of. The Venezuelan people have the threat of military force by only one entity, that is Nicolás Maduro and the generals uh, that have to decide whether or not they are going to support democracy and human rights or whether they are going to support a dictatorship and turn their guns on their brothers and sisters. That's why our message is very clear. If your hands are free of blood and human rights violations, you have a future. President Guaido has said you have a future. And you have a future free of sanctions that the United States will follow you anywhere in the world unless you don't have blood on your hands. There's only one entity in which the Venezuelan people face violence, and that is from the colectivas and the armed thugs that Nicolás Maduro has unleashed upon its people, not from any other entity in the hemisphere. There's only one person who causes the suffering of the Venezuelan people. It is not sanctions by the United States or anyone else. It is by the failed policies of Nicolás Maduro, who takes one of the wealthiest countries in the Western Hemisphere and has his people eating out of garbage. 
It is only one entity that has stolen the national patrimony of Venezuela, and that's Nicolás Maduro. And it is only one set of interventions that has taken place inside of Venezuela. It's taken place by Cuba that has its security apparatus propping up Maduro. If you go and fly into Caracas, you ultimately get searched by, by Cuban agents. Cuban agents are in the midst of creating silos among the generals in Venezuela so that they can't talk to each other because they're fearful that they do, that their head will roll and therefore can't talk about joining together to maybe support a democratic government. That's intervention. There's only one intervention by another foreign country, that's Russia, as it continues to prop up the Maduro regime in a whole host of ways, not the United States of America. And finally, uh, I really uh, tire somewhat uh, of the suggestion uh, about our sanctions. I, I, I've done foreign policy for 27 years between the House and the Senate. I only know of a handful of peaceful diplomacy tools to get countries to move in a certain direction. International criticism, condemnation, and opprobrium may move a democracy, but I haven't seen it move many dictators. I wish that it would, but it hasn't. And so what are we left with? Unlike Russia that uses military adventurism to pursue its foreign policy goals, we only have a handful of useful, uh, peaceful diplomacy tools. The use of our aid to induce countries to act a certain way, the use of our trade and access to our markets to induce countries to act a certain way, uh, the leverage of uh, our entities like USAID to help countries, and then there's the denial of aid or trade or access to our financial institutions, which we generally call sanctions. Now, I'd be happy to get a lesson about what other phalanx of uh, peaceful diplomacy tools we have. So unless we are willing to accept a dictatorship that oppresses its people, that does so by force, and that has them eating out of garbage uh, cans and denies them the critical medicines necessary to stay alive, I'm not going to be uh, repentant about our advocacy for sanctions as a peaceful tool to try to move a country in a better direction. And that includes Venezuela. And so I, I, I hope we just don't lose our eyes on who is responsible for the suffering of the Venezuelan people. His name is clear, it's etched in stone, it's etched in history, and hopefully he will face the opprobrium of history at the end of the day, and that's Nicolás Maduro. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. I am um, claiming my time, and then I'll recognize Senator Kane, and then unless anybody else comes, we'll wrap up. The 3.4 million people that left Venezuela were from 2014 to 2018. The UN projection that 2 million more were going to leave was established late last year as well. The figure that 90% of the people of Venezuela live in poverty and have lost on average 24 pounds was a 2018 number. The chronic and infectious diseases running rampant, hospitals lacking in supplies has been ongoing for a number of years. The uh, reduction in refining capacity to down to only about 25% uh, due to poor management, poor maintenance uh, is pre-existing back nine, nine, 2018 and, and before. The repeated denial of 
allowing, or even recognizing humanitarian catastrophe, much less allowing humanitarian aid to enter the country, did not begin on February 24th. This has been a long-standing policy of the Maduro regime. And I say all this because the idea that sanctions are going to exacerbate the humanitarian condition of the Venezuelan people assumes that any of the revenue they were generating previous to the sanctions, because up until the 24th of January 25th, all the sanctions were on individuals. They were on people, not on any sectors. So to, the argument that sanctions could make things worse assumes that the Venezuelan people were enjoying any of the benefits of the revenue that was being generated previous to that, to which um, all the evidence is clear that they were not. On the contrary, I mean, I know of no other nation, maybe there is one, I don't know, in which their defense minister also happens to be the chairman of the board of oil and gas. Um, I know of no other place where public servants who have served in government their entire lives are able to send their children abroad on shopping sprees in the tens of thousands of dollars. I know of no other nation in which their, uh, I guess what, I don't know what the right terminology she has, but the second in command at the UN, has never been to the UN building, lives in New York, and no one has seen her. Uh, and that's uh, Chavez's daughter, who's in, living in the evil United States, enjoying life in New York. Um, I know of, uh, so I, I think it's important for us to touch upon that point, because in the days to come, as Venezuela faces severe shortages of both fuel, you have to ask yourself, how could you possibly face a severe shortage of fuel? You're the world's richest, have, you sit on the world's richest supply of oil. The answer is because your refining capacity doesn't exist because instead of buying replacement parts and paying workers, you gave the state oil company over to your buddies so they can run it into the ground. It is it's like a tenant that's being evicted and they steal the wa copper wire out of the wall. I mean, they, they have stolen everything they could get their hands on. And that's why you have an extraordinary amount of wealth. In fact, it is funny to hear from all these regime insiders because they all reach out. Every single one of them sends out messages. Would I be an acceptable alternative? You know, can you give me visas for my family in exchange for us breaking? It's funny to hear them say, by the way, I'm just corrupt. I'm not in narco-trafficking. I'm just old-fashioned corrupt with hundreds of millions of dollars. How do you get, what other country in the world has generals that make hundreds of millions of dollars? That's a heck of a pension plan. Um, I've never seen anything anywhere in the world. They're getting their money from somewhere. And every penny that goes into their hands is not going to the Venezuelan people. So the bottom line is that um, this didn't start yesterday, nor did it start on the 24th of January when sanctions were imposed on the oil industry. The fact of the matter is that virtually every penny generated from the sale of oil for cash was sold, that was sold primarily to the United States, of which there are a very small percentage of our capacity, but we are a significant percentage of what they sell for cash around the world, went to their pockets, went into their hands. That's how they've gotten... And all of the narco-trafficking fees that they're charging go into their hands. None of that finds its way to the people of Venezuela. And so I only say that because that's the argument they're trying to set up. And they're going to try to use the UN and the visit over there next week to sort of I highlight that. But it's a fraud. It's a farce. And the people of Venezuela know it. They do. I mean, I, I, there's not a new issue. I, it's funny, you know, this issue's been in the paper now for six weeks, so there's a lot of Venezuela experts now. But I've been dealing with this for five years, so does Senator Menendez, many other people on this committee. None of this stuff is new. It's just gotten worse because they're running out of things to steal. So the second point that it brings me to is the loyalty. Yes, there are 2,000 generals. I would say that, that of the, there are about six to eight of them that actually matter. 
and one in particular in, in, in uh, Pedrino Lopez that actually matter, the guy who also chairs oil and gas. So he's got a, a day job and a night job. And, uh, and his family, meanwhile, lives in Spain. So the, 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 the question really becomes, their, is, their loyalty is not ideological, it's financial. Every single one of them is not loyal to Nicolás Maduro, they're not loyal to Chavismo, they are loyal to dollars, dollars. Not euros, not bolivars, not Cuban pesos, dollars. That, that's what they're loyal to. And hence, the less of that they have, the less reason they have to be loyal. And, and, and that is, uh, theoretically anyways, and that is uh, one of the things that, that we, they're not, it, this is no longer ideological. I'm not saying Maduro is not ideological. He probably is a true brew believer in a Cuban model and he thinks that he needs to go through this ugly period of time to get to that point. But the rest of these guys, they like money. And, and they have shown that, not just in the way they live, but in the way their families live. And that's critical to all this, because in my view, the, and I wanted to, this is really my question to both of you, the formula that brings us to this point um, is a combination of three things. One is widespread unrest, which is already ongoing, and it's tied to the legitimacy of the, of the government as well, the, the interim government. But widespread unrest, and we, we see that every time the, that uh, interim president Guaido despite internet blocks. Every time he speaks on TV, the internet goes dark as uh, you know, those Chinese uh, 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 workers over there are helping them block the internet at key moments. And yet he's still able to get hundreds of thousands of people into the street. Widespread unrest. Number two, the loss of military and elite support. And number three, continued international pressure. And the combination of those three things ultimately leave Maduro with dwindling and very stark options. And, and I, I believe a safe haven for him, which is probably in Turkey or, or somewhere like that. Is that not ultimately what needs to happen here? The combination of widespread unrest, loss of military and elite support, and continued international pressure that ultimately presents him with stark choices and either causes him to move out of the way in a negotiated exit or um, causes those who continue to prop him up to force that negotiated exit in a new beginning. I'll, I'll, I'll start with that, um, Senator Rubio, and I think that um, what has struck me throughout this hearing is I don't think there's really much disagreement at all about what reality is in Venezuela and who is responsible. On the question of sanctions not being the source of humanitarian crisis, I couldn't agree more. Um, the politicization of humanitarian aid was started by the Maduro regime by its refusal to admit that there was a humanitarian crisis in the country and by not allowing um, international support in. Um, the hunger, the loss of weight, the lack of food and medicine, all of these have been longstanding and, and predate in many ways the sanctions. My concern about the additional effect of the sanctions is based on talking actually to humanitarian workers inside Venezuela who are concerned not that just that people, rather than eating three meals a day, go down to two meals a day and, lost, and lose 20 pounds, but there is actually widespread starvation. I mean, the kinds of things that are, that are shown in this, uh, in this um, photo, which is why I think that it would be very important to channel some portion of U.S. assistance not just have it parked on the border waiting to go into Venezuela, but actually channel it through the various 
organizations that have been able to maintain their neutrality and are on the ground and are looking for a non-political way to get that money in and get it out to needy people, regardless of, uh, of any kind of political affiliation. Um, the, the, um, the three things that you mentioned, the three factors, the unrest, the loss of military and elite support, and international pressure, could not agree more that these are the ingredients for what will bring about change in Venezuela. The question is, how do you increase the relevance of the second factor that you mentioned, the loss of military and elite support? That is, the, the, I think, the key issue that all of us should, that, are, that are concerned with a democratic transition in Venezuela should be focused on. How do we bring that about? What combination of carrots, sticks, off-ramps, visas do we contemplate um, um, in order to get sufficient buy-in that there is a regime transition? And then finally, I would just say that um, the widespread unrest that exists now that is able, that, that uh, President Guaido is able to mobilize may not necessarily last. And I think there is a concern broadly, um, that, uh, that, that time may not be on his side. The regime certainly feels that time is on its side. I think it's important to remember that people who are starving do not mobilize in the streets. Um, if you look at some of the old classics, you know, Ted Gurr, Why Men Rebel, it's not absolute poverty. It's that rise in expectations. And I think that's why we're seeing, after the 2014 protests, this enormous outpouring of renewed street demonstrations that is not sustainable over the long term as the sanctions take their bite. Or my only comment on that is that uh, people who are starving do mobilize, they leave. And that's what they'll do. And for, but the borders Correct. are closed. Correct. So Correct. it'll be interesting Correct. to see Correct. where they exactly. go. And, and, exactly. Uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Burns. No, not at all. Thank you for the opportunity. And I want to say how much I appreciated both your statement and uh, Mr. Menendez's statement. And I think you've encapsulated these issues very, very effectively and very well and very powerfully. Uh, just to add a couple quick things, if I may, I do agree with the framework that you just laid out in terms of the three key uh, aspects. And I also agree that the loss of military and elite support remains the key in some ways and in, in, indeed the most difficult. Um, you know, the point that you raised, Mr. Rubio, about how you have some of the leadership, indeed all of the leadership of the military and security forces, fully invested in the continuation of the regime, I think is accurate. And why? Because the regime has very effectively bought them in through access to unimaginable levels of corruption, whether it's through PDVSA or, or uh, uh, different exchange rates or controlling the import of certain um, you know, items like food. I mean, you have generals literally in control of the import of beans and the generals in, in control of the import of, you know, chickens. It, it just, it's weird, right? That's not what militaries are supposed to do, but it, it buys them into the continuation of the process. And then you have the entire uh, system of drug trafficking that has not just been sort of allowed but encouraged as another way to uh, buy uh, some of these officials into the uh, continuation of the regime and to buy off their loyalty. Uh, so how do you begin to get at that? Because they're not the ones who are going to shift. They're not the ones that are going to go to Colombia and declare their allegiance to Mr. Guaido. I think we have to have, uh, and it, the, the first panel alluded to it a little bit, but we really need to go hard after 
the assets that these uh, folks maintain outside of Venezuela, well, inside too, but outside Venezuela, identify the assets, seize them, and cause them to forfeit them. These are ill-gotten gains. They're stolen either from the Venezuelan people or gained through illegal activities. They have no call on them, and so the international community working together, I think that's a very powerful aspect. And then the second one is one that the administration has begun to uh, explore, I think, more actively, and that's the whole visas issue. And by taking visas away from individuals, I think that's powerful. It's equally powerful of, of, of either denying visas or removing existing visas from family members who may be in Spain or France or Italy or wherever. So if you can work together with other governments in Europe particularly, but also Latin America, um, this begins a powerful incentive because now the ring begins to close on the individuals who are causing the most damage in Venezuela. Now that's, again, I don't believe necessarily going to cause them to change their allegiance to Mr. Guaido, but it does provide a powerful signal to those underneath who are the most likely perhaps to change that uh, if they continue on the current path, uh, their future is not going to be a happy one and that if they switch, uh, their future is going to be much better. So there, it gets to the carrots and sticks issue that's come up several times in the hearing. Sorry, Tim. I want to ask about Colombia. I think one of the uh, best examples of the U.S. using a comprehensive approach to deal with a foreign policy objective has been the work in Colombia sustained over Democratic and Republican administrations. And I would like to ask your perspective on how the current status uh, in Venezuela affects Colombia, affects the peace process, affects the path toward restoring governmental services in parts of the country that had been abandoned for decades. Talk about what's at risk there and what we ought to do to protect the advances that we have helped achieve. I'll start. I think a great deal is at risk. Um, I think that Colombia is simply unprepared uh, to absorb the 1.1 million that are already in, let alone the million plus that are going to be arriving in 2019 as the economy um, continues on its death spiral. Um, Colombia has, as you know, this fiscal rule that requires that there be a, a progressive decrease um, in the deficit. Um, at the same time, it faces spending needs to implement uh, aspects of the peace agreement that talk about connecting the rural to the urban and bringing state presence not only in a physical or security sense to these uh, previous conflict zones but also opportunities, services, infrastructure. It can't all be done. It simply cannot all be done. And I think that um, there is a great risk that without the resources, without the backing of the international community, um, Colombia will make very hard choices. I also believe that the refugee flows throughout Latin America are going to have an indelible impact on the politics of the region for the foreseeable future. Just as politics in Europe have been deeply impacted by the influx of refugees from Syria and Libya and Afghanistan and Iraq and other conflict zones, and not in a good way, I would say, um, I do fear that, uh, that there will be similar um, impacts on the, on the ability of countries uh, to sustain liberal pluralist democracies. Um, and I think that right now we're focused on the humanitarian emergency and how you're going to feed these people and give them access to medical care and, and allow their kids to go to school. 
um, we need to put out sort of an early warning um, about the impact on, on the political systems, not just in Colombia, but also in Peru and in Ecuador and everywhere else. F fully agree. I, you know, Colombia uh, has some difficult uh, fiscal circumstances, and something has to give. I mean, you've got a peace process which requires billions of dollars of investment, uh, not just to implement the accords directly, but also to develop the areas of Colombia to allow these peace, this peace to be sustainable. They've also had a soft economy, which has to be um, revitalized, and uh, President Duque is working on that. Clearly, you have drug production now that has spiked. That requires new resources as well. And now you have a humanitarian crisis worse than any we've seen in this Western Hemisphere in the modern era. There's simply not resources for that. So I think the international community can come alongside the Colombians uh, to try to mitigate the worst impact of that. Uh, but there's another point that I, I think also needs to be raised, and that is that Venezuela, under first Hugo Chavez and now Nicolas Maduro, has provided safe haven for FARC and ELN um, combatants. And they are, in some ways, leading directly to some of the destruction of Venezuela. Now, it's not a political thing. It's not a guerrilla force. They're not working to take over the government, but they're working directly in the, gold, in the illegal gold mining sector. They're working uh, in, in crime and criminal activities, and they're working in drug trafficking. And so uh, this is maybe a leftover from the Colombian experience, but it's still related. Uh, and so to the extent that uh, the Venezuela problem continues to deteriorate and Venezuela turns toward becoming a failed state, and I don't know what the proper definition of failed state is, but to the extent that it's turning toward one, that gives greater permissiveness for uh, recalcitrant uh, elements of the FARC and ELN and others to conduct their affairs in a lawless way. And I think that's ultimately not just self-defeating, but it, it, it creates real complications in terms of reestablishing rule of law and revitalizing uh, a democracy in Venezuela if it comes to that. So I really appreciate the fact that you link the two countries together. They're, con they're together historically, politically, and, and this is just yet another example. Very good testimony, very good hearing. Thanks, Mr. Chair. Appreciate the witnesses. Thank you. And, and just three quick points I want to make as we wrap up. The, the, the first is um, these nation states that want to be helpful, many of whom have expressed concern about some angle of our policy or statements, I think it's incumbent on them to step up to the plate then. And if they don't want certain things, then do the things that you are willing to do, the visa revocations, the additional sanctions. I think uh, we appreciate the recognition of, of President Guaido, but there's more that can be done, and there are a handful of countries that happen to be the favorite destination of some of these thieves and their families, and, and we would hope they would step up and do more. The second is, and it was touching on what you just mentioned, Mr. Farnsworth, I don't believe that the Maduro regime should be viewed as a government. It doesn't operate as a government. It is better understood as an organized crime syndicate. It operates like an organized crime syndicate. There's very little in the way of government on a daily basis. It is largely a group of people bound together by the ability to steal and make money. Um, but the way you collapse an organized crime syndicate is you recognize there are a bunch of thieves and criminals and they have no honor and they end up turning on each other in their best interest because that's really what it's become. I mean, that, that is by and large what binds uh, that organization together. It is an organized crime ring that, by the way, sponsors terrorism, as you've outlined, where the ELN openly operates uh, in, in their territory and um, as recently as a month ago killed 20 police cadets in Colombia in a, in, a, in a bombing. And last but not least on aid and working with the organizations, that would be a great idea. The problem is that the current aid now is basically an open secret. Um, these aid groups that are operating in Venezuela need to do so, but they need to do so quietly and with very little publicity 
And if there's any uptick in the amount of aid that they're distributing, it gets noticed and scrutinized because it runs counter to two things. The Maduro regime's narrative that there is no humanitarian crisis. They're just talking about how great Carnival was and how all these people were at the beach. And so they're arguing there's no humanitarian crisis. That's number one. And number two is the more aid there is, the less people depend on Maduro for food, the less he can control them. And so the problem is that these entities don't want to receive an uptick in humanitarian aid to distribute because it would imperil the little that they're able to do now. So as an example, you're a charity, you're feeding people in Venezuela today. If you take, and if there's a significant increase in the amount of aid you're distributing, it might cancel your entire program because the Maduro regime doesn't want you to do that. So that's why, it, ideally, you would be able to work through those groups. But those groups don't want it because it endangers their, their small-scale existing programs now. And, and that's a real challenge that we've been facing here. So. Um, I know we've been here for two and a half hours, and I Ruby, appreciate. Could I could yes, I comment please. on that briefly? I mean, I think that that is, um, to a certain extent, true of the past. In many ways, it it, it we should treat it as a hypothesis to be tested. Um, the ICRC has announced a doubling of its budget for Venezuela. Um, the UN is quietly, as you say, expanding its footprint, you know, on the ground, and uh, they have to operate very, very carefully um, so as not to call attention to themselves, but I think that there, there is definitely an effort, um, particularly in light of sanctions that um, everyone knows will expand uh, the suffering, and I, and I would slightly disagree uh, that none of this, uh, none of the revenue, the oil revenue ever came in. I mean, the, the, Venezuela imports some enormous, I don't know if it's 100% of its food, but pretty close in the 90%, same with medicine. Um, whatever there is in the country depends on, on, on foreign reserves. And uh, the clap boxes are a form of political control. I completely agree. Um, they do provide a subsistence level. Um, if you take that away, again, I think conditions get worse. So. Um, uh, I, I don't really know what the answer is, um, but I think that the, there's a few more sort of subtleties to the, to the situation that we should um, very much keep in mind. Well, um, d just on that, I mean, the, it is true they import their food, but it's the, the, the role of remittances is, is there's entire industries of people that are sending family members food. There's the stuff sold on the black market for those that have access to that cash. There are the people, 40% that depend to some level to clap, and then, frankly, the people who have left because it's not enough for them. So in any event, I, as we, we've had a long hearing. I appreciate both your patience and your testimony today, along with our previous witnesses. I want to thank everyone for being here today. We had a huge turnout in my seven years. It's the best attended Western Hemisphere subcommittee hearing. <laughs> and, uh, and I want to thank the Capitol Police, because they've been very helpful in channeling people in and out, as I know we've had a lot of demand to be in here. Uh, again, I'm just grateful to them and for the work they've done. The record for this hearing will remain open for 48 hours, and without the hearings adjourned.